This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Good Wednesday morning, everyone. This is not Dr. Matt Townsend. And uh, I'm not even sure it's Jeff Simpson this morning because it sounds like I'm starting to come down with something. You know, it's interesting. You know how some days you go uh, you go throughout your day without ever having looked in the mirror? Well, apparently I uh, came to work today without having talked to anybody and I just started talking and this is what I sound like. I so, like it. It sounds good. Oh, thank you. Does the, I think maybe the deeper voice is more soothing Maybe my wife will find it more attractive. I don't know. No, it really sounds like you're sick. Shoot. There's a difference where sometimes it drops an <laughs> octave and you're like, whoa. Other times it just sounds like you're ready to have a nice cold. A nice cold? Yeah, a nice, thorough, really hearty, mm. destructive cold. Maybe it was because I was working on my hot tub yesterday and it was freezing. much colder than it should have been. Right. Yeah, oh. it's, it's freezing outside. Yeah, why were you outside? Hot tub. Well, can't you put that off till you know, it's going to be 70 degrees this weekend? Well, it's been about four months since we've drained it, so we're kind of pushing it. All right. I, uh, yeah. I don't want the bacteria to continue to grow. Oh, what's some bacteria? <laughs> yeah. Just throw it's my like kids in there. It's not like you're drinking it. Yeah. It'll, it'll, it builds character. I'm sure my kids are drinking it, though. <laughs> anyway, so uh, hopefully... I can uh, have some time to go sit in the hot tub and and get feeling better or just start feeling worse. Today, Terry, I'm excited to read this, and maybe you can shed some more light on this. Today is Star Trek First Contact Day? Yeah, absolutely. Now, isn't that like the sixth or the seventh movie in the series? Well, if you want to look at them as movies instead of, you know... Like a documentary of events that will happen. Interesting. Uh, isn't that kind of the take that the aliens in Galaxy Quest had? No. I've never seen <laughs> Galaxy Quest. Oh, my. Are you serious? Yeah, it looked dumb. What? Okay. It's so funny. Terry. I don't, I don't need an explanation. I mean, I'm not going to watch it. So. You're, it's fine. Your opinion is founded okay. on that. I won't it's explain the movie. Dumb. I won't explain the movie, but let me just say this. When I told my mother-in-law, well, that's probably not a good example. When I told uh, an unnamed person that they should should watch this movie, (laughs) they had the same reaction that you did. And then we sat down and watched it, and they loved it. 90% on Rotten Tomatoes, which I'm sure is much better than most of these Star Trek movies. Absolutely. Uh, (laughs) Especially the first one, which I've never seen, but I've heard is incredibly boring. Meh. It's kind of slow, but it's yeah. good. If it's your thing. No, in the, there's a movie, First Contact, and there's a, a date they give, and it's the first time humans, as it says in the explanation, break the warp barrier. And when they do that, then the other, other civilizations who have that speed technology through space, that's when they decide to make contact because now you're going to be bumping around the, uh, the universe and you're going to cause problems because, you know, Klingons, they hate people. Okay, now I'm starting to regret asking. Yeah, so – 
basically there's a date. It's like <laughs> what's the date? Like 2063. 2063. Or something? I don't know why I remember that from yesterday. I didn't even know this existed until yesterday. But I guess you know, fans of Star Trek look at this as the day that their story became something more. Than what it wasn't or I don't know. Well, if you're looking for the you movie. You say fans like you're not one. I'm, I don't. I, Star Trek is fine. I don't really. I like I've never really watched the original <laughs> series. I find that completely boring. It takes forever. Yeah. First so, off. But I mean the, in, in that storyline, the humans actually, we talked about it. If you're trying to get to the, those seven new planets they found, it's going to take like a million years. Right, it's impossible wow. for us to ever get anywhere until you figure out a new form of speed. And in this story, that's when they did that, and that's when the story takes off because they start meeting aliens, and that's really what you want to do. That's about how long it would take to get through all of the Star Trek movies. Absolutely. So this, I'm, I'm remembering, I'm not a huge Star Trek fan, but I want to say number five is like the undiscovered country or something like that. Number six is Star Trek Generations, which is the first film that there's a crossover between the older generation right. and the newer generation with um, Shatner Picard and yeah. yeah they, they fight or something. And this is the first movie without the older generation. And I believe it's also the movie where Data uh, actually has a personality. Yeah, they put some chip in him. And, yes. I don't know. I, wow. When, I just when, nerded out there. When they had the one movie where they had to go back in time to find some whales to talk to some alien species that was going to destroy the earth because they always came back to talk to the whales. I just kind of went, Wait, so know, the whales were going to destroy the, the earth? No, the whales talked to the aliens. <laughs> They're tired right? of us. And so <laughs> but in the future, apparently, they the whales are all gone, and so the aliens were going to, you know, Destroy the Earth because you took away all the whales. We haven't been saving enough whales. And so the, huh. the the you know William Shatner, Leonard Nimoy had to go back in time to San Francisco, find some whales, and bring a whale back so he could talk to the aliens. It's just it's a whole thing. How much <laughs> you want to bet Matt would be so jealous dumb. that he's missing this conversation right now? Zero to none. <laughs> well, we need to we need to go back and and uh, just save this portion of the show. We'll and share it for him. Yeah. We'll send it to him while he's on vacation in St. George. Today is also Deep Dish Pizza Day, and uh, Pizzeria Uno's founder, Ike Sewell, is credited with creating the spectacular deep dish pizza in 1943 in, of all places, Chicago. Yeah, Who would associate Chicago with So pizza? if you like a loaf of bread with your pizza, <laughs> deep dish pizza. <laughs> oh, goodness. Deep dish, thin crust, regular just pizza. Doesn't no, matter. Pizza doesn't answer good, my man. question. Pizza's yeah. good. I just like the the yeah. regular crust. Just let's meet in the middle. What classifies as regular? Uh, not thin, not deep dish. There you go. Not a cracker, not a loaf of bread. <laughs> pizza. Yes. Not matzo. Not Man. All right. So celebrate that by uh, eating a deep dish or just eating a pizza any way you want. If you don't feel like a loaf of bread, as Terry said, then just go regular. Some of them get really out of control and they're really thick. Yeah. I don't mind a thicker crust, but man. Yeah, those people can't be trusted. Anyway, uh, all that fun stuff coming up on the show. We'll we'll continue those important topics. And uh, I, I, if, I don't think we've milked them for all that we can yet. But for now, let's head over to Terry South, who's going to give us what's going on around the rest of the country. Terry, what's up? President Trump on Tuesday publicly condemned an apparent chemical gas attack the Assyrian government held against an entire town connected to the 
horrific accident, or he connected the horrific incident to uh, President Obama's decision not to take any action after establishing a red line condemning the Assad regime's use of weapons uh, some years ago. He said, today's chemical attack in Syria against innocent people, including women and children, is reprehensible and cannot be ignored by the civilized world, the president said in a statement. These heinous actions by the Bashar al-Assad regime are consequences of the past administration's weakness and irresolution. Uh, President Obama said in 2012 that he would establish a red line against the use of chemical weapons and then did nothing. The United States stands with our allies across the globe to condemn this intolerable, intolerable attack. Additionally, according to the Associated Press, Rex Tillerson, Secretary of State, said Russia and Iran bear a great moral responsibility for the deaths resulting from this purported chemical attack. Uh, if you've seen the videos, it's horrible. There are kids, people, men, women dying in the streets. Ugh. They can't breathe. There's no wounds on them. And they're just breathing. Some are foaming at the mouth. And so there was, oh there was a apparent chemical attack. This might be the second time because there was another incident like this where similar people were suffering. Um, but uh, that was when the uh, red line – well, that brought up the red line comment if they use these chemical weapons. Now, the problem was that President Obama said he was going to do something and go after him, but he lacked the votes in Congress to strike, and he was unwilling to go in without congressional approval. Mm. Uh, that tends to ruffle you know, everyone's feathers if you don't go to Congress. They're the ones by the Constitution sure. supposed to declare if we're going to go to war, per se, and do yeah. that kind of thing. He want, This wouldn't be – go to war but he wanted congress behind him and they didn't want to do it um and so he went with a plan for russia to destroy the chemical weapons stock that assad had and apparently there's still weapons around cbs evening news pointed out the attack came five days after the trump administration signaled that the syrian dictator would not be held accountable for the slaughter of his own people they're just going to pull back and let the people of Syria decide what they want to do with their president. Mm. So five days after Trump says he's not going to do anything about it, he's criticizing Obama because he didn't do anything about it. Sure. So it's like, what are we doing? Just how about we do something about it? Well, it's not his fault. No. Right? So it's it's kind of an interesting uh, tactic to blame behind. I mean, President Obama kind of did that a little bit with President Bush. He's like, well, I, we, we had these situations from the previous administration. What are we supposed to do? You know, so I, yeah. we bought our car at a Nissan dealership and we went back with some issues and they said, oh, yeah, it, so-and-so sold it to you, right? Well, he's no longer with the company. Yeah, he did that to a lot of people. Right. Like so. somehow it's not their fault. Right. I don't know. We'll see what happens. It's an ongoing story here. Uh, in other news, the O'Reilly Factor is down 20 advertisers with several luxury car makers, pharmaceutical giants, insurance companies, and even a dog food manufacturer pulling their ads from the show after it was reported that host Bill O'Reilly and Fox News paid $13 million to settle with five women who accused O'Reilly of sexual harassment and verbal abuse. Oh, boy. So you got Mercedes-Benz, BMW, T. Rowe Price, GlaxoSmithKline. They're among some of those stopping their ads from running during the O'Reilly Factor. Most of those companies have been released statements condemning uh, the harassment, including Mercedes-Benz, which called the allegations against O'Reilly disturbing. The advertising has been moved from the O'Reilly Factor to other shows on Fox News to kind of kind of mm. gauge what the situation will be. So it's not on his show. It's on other shows. But uh, we'll see where that goes. But you start getting 20 advertisers uh, concerned about what's going on. They start getting uh, nervous. Glenn five Beck, five women, you said? There's five women. They paid out $13 million settlement wow. to, to try to make them go away. <laughs> Glenn Beck was on Fox News several years ago, and his demise from the network was when the advertisers left. 
Mm. Or threatened to leave, you know, and so they so decided to make a cut. So could be a so, precursor. But O'Reilly gets big ratings. Mm. He's their highest rated show on the network, so there's kind of this push and shove, so we'll see where mm. that goes. Um, moving on, the Trump administration is considering requiring even short-term visitors to the U.S. to disclose contacts on their mobile phones, social media passwords, and financial records, and to answer probing questions about their ideology, the Wall Street Journal reports. While the policy would be part of President Trump's ongoing promise of extreme vetting, the changes would apply to visitors from around the world, including France, Germany, the U.K., Japan, and Australia. Many experts are unconvinced by the uh, proposed approach. The real bad guys will get rid of their phones. They'll show up with a clean phone or not have a phone at all. They'll just ditch it so you won't be able to see what they're doing. But wouldn't that be a red flag if somebody didn't have a phone these days? Not necessarily. Huh. What, are you going to arrest them because they don't have a phone? Yeah. Hey, get on the ground. <laughs> it's like you what should have a phone. phone. I don't know. It's, <laughs> we'll see what happens. I think maybe Trump loves Twitter so much he's got to use yeah. other people's accounts now. Maybe <laughs> we have a guest coming up talking about uh, exactly internet security and personal safety. What you you should do this? She talks about how you come across the border. There's laws there that uh, your phone could be searched, and she'll talk about that a little bit. On um, finally, last year the NFL experimented by letting Twitter live stream ten Thursday night football games. This year they're going to continue that test, but they're going to put it on Amazon. As Amazon has bought the league's rights, $50 million for 10 games, which is more than the uh, $10 million that Twitter paid last year. And uh, also Facebook and Google. Well, you, Google wanted it on YouTube. I think they did that before. They had one game, and I watched that. It's kind of a – like I watched a few of them because the game's also going to be bro- uh, broadcast on either NBC or CBS, whoever else has the, the contract there. But it's kind of odd to watch because you're just – Watching it on your phone or on your yeah. screen somehow. Twitter had some interesting things because you had the the screen kind of to the uh, the left where you could watch the game, and on the right you had the the Twitter feed yeah. for the game, which was kind of fun to watch back and forth. But I don't know. We'll see. So yeah. Amazon's going to air these games live. You can live stream if them? you're a Prime member. See, I don't know if they could be trusted to to deliver those games on time. I think they'll be three days late instead of two days. Yes. Okay. So live means three days after the fact. So you can watch live streaming if you have Amazon Prime, and uh, they'll test it out, and then uh, the NFL will shop it and maybe let Facebook pay more money next year. Because that's really what this is turning into, is just a way to generate cash. Isn't that a ni- That's such a wonderful feeling to just know that you're loved and wanted, and you can just shop around and yeah. see who loves you the most. Yeah. Hmm. Or your money the most. Yeah. Whichever one works. So this year, if right now it's Amazon, maybe next year it's uh, – And it's really gimmicky. You'll, it's Most people I heard just sort of just check it out and then, all right, then they turn their TV back on. Because you want to watch it on a big screen, not on your phone. Why can't they do that with the Dodgers games? Why do they keep know. going? Why do they oh, – they have this huge contract Have they still with, settled that – there was a point where like half of Los Angeles County could not watch a Dodger game. I know it's ridiculous because of the cable subscription. Time Warner issues. Cable. Oh my! Is that goodness. still going on? Or I think so. Okay, I I, I was following it for a while, then I got bored because it was just cable wanting more money from people and whatever. <laughs> they would never do that. Always, they constantly do that. Oh wait, the television never lies. When have I ever? Has anybody ever had anything nice to say about cable companies? No. All they want is your money. Yeah. Wow. Well, anyway, uh, coming up as Terry Tease, we're going to be speaking with a guest who, 
who says that we shouldn't uh, be trusted with something. You know, usually you think about uh, men maybe not being trusted to uh, go shopping. I know sometimes when I go shopping, I bring home the wrong things, meaning I see a bag of chocolate caramel popcorn and I think, oh, that looks like a good idea. Not Muddy Buddies? Oh, that's good too. So I don't think I could be trusted to go shopping. Some other people might not be trusted to uh, to babysit. But our next guest is going to tell us why maybe we shouldn't be trusted with our own passwords. Hmm. Interesting topic when we come back. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Welcome back to the Matt Townsend Show on this beautiful Wednesday morning. This is Jeff Simpson filling in for Dr. Matt while he's away in St. George. You know, since 2009, U.S. Customs and Borders Protection agents have been able to search electronic devices carried by citizens and non-citizens as they enter the country. It's been suggested that this vetting should also include harvesting social media passwords. This violates the first rule of online security. Don't share your passwords. This has caused major problems for private citizens and government employees alike. Here to speak to us today about password protection is Dr. Megan Squire, a professor of computing science at Elon University in North Carolina. Uh, Megan, welcome to the Matt Townsend Show. Hi, I'm glad to be here. Great, yeah, and thanks for being here. Um, So I teased before we went to commercial, you know, a lot of husbands and fathers probably shouldn't be trusted to go to the grocery store because who knows what they're going to come back with. And, you know, maybe some other people might not be trusted to babysit. But but you're saying that we shouldn't even know our own passwords. Now, explain uh, the thinking behind that. Yeah, so there's a bit of a, a bit of a trip to get there, but um, kind of what I started thinking was, given that um, we can't always um, want to comply with requests for our passwords, for example, at the border or something like that, we might not want to comply with such an order. Um, is there a way that we can state that we don't, not that we just don't want to comply, but that we actually cannot comply? So I don't actually know my own password. I'm unable to know it. I've offloaded that to um, to a machine, for example, or to my own computer. Interesting. So tell us about some of these different methods. I, I know that uh, uh, in some of your writings you've mentioned several different methods and maybe some of the benefits and drawbacks of each of them. Yeah, so the idea is that we would use computer science um, and the things that we know about how the human mind works and how um, our bodies work and things like this uh, to invent new ways to keep our own data um, private without us having to memorize some sequence of numbers and letters. So a couple of the ones that I've been looking at um, would use some combination of biometrics or even some more interesting things like machine learning techniques. So one of them that a lot of people might understand uh, relies on training the subconscious brain to know the password without our conscious brain having to know what the password is. So I guess the best analogy here would be learning to play a musical instrument or maybe playing a video game like a lot of people might have played Guitar Hero. And you end up memorizing this sort of sequence of keys um, to play a, to play a song. 
if someone asked you, write down the keys or what were the keys that you played, you, you probably wouldn't be able to do that or it would take a really long time to do it. But the, if I asked you to reproduce it on the fake guitar in Guitar Hero, um, you would probably be able to do that. So Especially a, if it was Sweet Child of Mine. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah, it depends on what your musical tastes are. But um, yeah, we're asking the subconscious brain to do the work for us. So we're unable to produce the password if we were, for example, under duress or asked to um, when we didn't want to produce a password. Interesting. You know, I think for a lot of people that uh, can be true of, of some of the passwords that they do know. Like, for instance, we get uh, such into the habit of, of typing in our password as we open up our computer or, you know, as we use the ATM that a lot of times it just becomes more out of sight and uh, feeling the keys than it does actually remembering what the password is. So when it comes down to it, every once in a while I find myself having to think for a few minutes like, wait a minute, now what is my password? Yeah, exactly. We call that muscle memory. And it's the same thing that lets you be a really fast keyboard typist. Um, your fingers just kind of know what you – know, there's a little you know brain-finger connection there, I guess. Um, one of the interesting things that people push back with on this idea is they say, well, couldn't I just watch the person type the password and then I would know it? So the research on this type of password also adds another layer where they um, measure the fluidity with which the person typing enters the password. So the faster you're able to type it, the more likely it is that it's actually you and not someone trying to imitate you. Interesting. So could it be just the speed or could there be a rhythm element to it? Like, for instance, if uh, you mentioned uh, music, you'd have to get the rhythm right in order for the password to work. Exactly. So it's a fluidity of entry, not just um, the fact that you got the keystrokes in the right order. Interesting. Okay, so there's that method. What what other options would there be? So, yeah, another one that's kind of interesting, it's a little bit more biometric. In other words, it uses parts of our bodies um, to, to identify us. This one um, came out of Cal State um, Poly Pomona, and it's called Chill Pass. And this one is interesting. So imagine when you're super relaxed and you're listening to very, you know, chill music, um, you get this biometric reaction that kind of we might refer to it as like a chill going up and down our spine. So that biometric reaction that's individual to each user becomes part of a login sequence. So the idea with this password is that you have um, an individual response to this selection of music, um, which is you know, spe- specific to that person, but also you have to be very relaxed when you're entering this this login sequence or else it will not work. Interesting. So, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so the idea here is that if you had, if you were in a stressful situation, like at the border and were being, or anywhere really, and were being asked for a password that you didn't feel like giving, um, you would be not relaxed enough to give that password. So while it's probably not practical for day to day, you know, I mean, I unlock my phone a hundred times a day or more. So this is probably not, um, you know, very practical for that. But if we were uh, knowing that we were going to be under a high-stress situation, we might consider a password like this. Megan, are there any other reasons why we shouldn't know our passwords other than, you know, we're in a situation at the border where we are compelled to, to hand over this information? So, yeah, we think about it a lot of times in terms of civil rights, but there are practical reasons why we might not want to know our own passwords, too. We're not very good at remembering passwords, and we have to invent 
more and more complicated methods for keeping track of all these passwords and remembering to change them and they keep getting hacked and things like that. So it's we've sort of you know built this house of cards with password managers and so on and pass complicated password protocols. Um, it may be time to just not worry about this anymore. Just like we teach little kids to do long division or to calculate square roots, but at some point we hand them a calculator, um, if, especially if we want accuracy, um, high throughput with you know doing calculations. We just don't want to rely on our human brains to do this work. So if we think about it in, in those terms, maybe it's time. So just getting back to the scenario at the border, I mean, who exactly does this affect? Does this, how does this affect Americans versus, let's say, somebody that's coming from Mexico that's just trying to visit the United States? How would this affect an American versus somebody from Mexico or Canada? Um, so I guess you're you're asking about the current law. So I should say I'm not a lawyer. I'm a computer scientist. So That's I'm going to okay. give a very you know basic basic description of what the current situation is at the border. But right now there's a um, you know there's laws that cover when you enter and exit the country, and those laws um, are a little bit less strict. In other words, what what our rights are um, at the border versus you know in the middle of the country somewhere, not near a border station or near an airport. Um, some of the laws that we have apply, you know, our rights are given to citizens, and of course non-citizens those would not um, apply to. So your question about people coming in from, you said Mexico, um, a technological solution would cover those folks, but currently right now a legal solution that only covered citizens obviously would, would not. So um, there's some things that we can get from a legal solution, and those are great, um, but we also could consider you know, technological solutions that anyone could use and not just American citizens. Megan, let's do this. Let's take a break. Uh, when we come back, let's continue this discussion. I'm curious to know how uh, you you became interested in this uh, topic. Mm, yeah. And then uh, we'll continue this discussion. I've got a few more questions on this, uh, Let's, but let's first take a break. This is the Matt Townsend okay. Show, helping you live more informed and safer lives. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the Matt Townsend Show. This is Jeff Simpson filling in for Dr. Matt while he's away in St. George. And we've been speaking with Dr. Megan Squire, who is a Ph.D. of uh, computing science at Elon University in, in North Carolina. She's also a software developer and database designer by trade. She studies, uh, let's see, she studies free Libra and open source software, FLOSS, uh, spe- uh, specifically the collection, curation, and and Federation of Large Amounts of Textual Data. And we've been talking about password protection and why maybe it's not a good idea that we know our own passwords, which is something that seemed totally foreign to me before we started talking, Megan. And I'm, I'm curious to know how you originally became interested in this idea of uh, not knowing our own passwords. Well, this is a bit of a story, but I'll make it brief. So I was at a political protest um, several months ago, and one of the legal observers there who was 
um, wearing a special hat and was there to just observe what was going on and, um, you know, give guidance when necessary, said that anybody that was doing the um, nonviolent civil disobedience should take their thumbprint scanner off of their um, cell phone and put a regular passcode on. And I, I said, what? Why would we want to do that? I, I was, you know, thinking that biometrics would be much more um, difficult to to crack, you know, if my phone got taken or something like this. And the person started to explain. We got in this long conversation. I almost missed the protest because we got in talking about the difference <laughs> between um, asking for a password that's stored in your mind versus using a thumbprint that's stored on your body. And one of those is protected by the Fifth Amendment, and one of them is um, is not. <laughs> so, um, yeah, so that, that was all news to me. It was very interesting, and I thought, wow, this is a lot more complicated um, than I thought it was. And so I started looking into, you know, just general password laws and stuff. And then finally, I kind of decided to throw in the towel and apply some computer science to this. What if we didn't have to worry about this at all? So that's kind of where I started reading up and researching on um, alternatives to passwords. So Interesting. Um, yeah. So before the break, you, you told us about a couple of different ways that we could not know our password, and uh, it would make it more difficult for for people that were trying to compel us to share our password. Um, one of those was the uh, the guitar hero approach that you talked about, kind of having a a uh, rhythmic or you know focusing on the fluidity of the of typing in the password. Um, did we? I can't recall. Did we already talk about the "I'd love to comply, but I can't" approach? <laughs> I mean, that was kind of how I led into this was this idea that, um, you know, nobody wants to, we don't wake up in the morning and decide, I'm going to, I'm going to not comply with what a, you know, right. an authority is asking me. <laughs> I mean, it's usually not our first choice of how to spend our day. But, um, you know, sometimes we, we may feel that we cannot comply with a request. Um, this, my idea was if the answer could instead somehow be, I'd love to comply with you, but I cannot. I literally don't know my password because I'm using this system that doesn't make me know one. Um, or somehow protecting our data in, in another way. I like to look for um, a technological solution, um, if I can, just sometimes for fun because I'm a computer scientist, but also it may end up being a more symmetrical solution, so something that's more um, more fair to both parties. Yeah, so... It, I guess there's a scenario where you could – it could be like a, a two-password approach or you've got something that needs – that you need in order to unlock the passcode, but it's in a, a remote location. What can you tell oh, us about yeah. that? Yeah, so a lot of th- – when this border stuff kind of started coming out in January, February timeframe, there were a flurry of articles and you know, advice from very well-meaning people um, – with some pretty complicated, uh, you know, quote, I'll put them in air quotes, solutions to the password problem. And a lot of them involved things like um, using, you know, turning on two-factor authentication on, on all of your devices and all of your social media accounts and then sending the second factor, which would be the SIM card in your phone, and secretly mailing it to a remote location. I'm thinking, oh, my goodness, this is, you know, A, it's very complicated and most people won't be able to follow this security protocol. And, and B, What's to stop a you know an authority from just asking you to go to the 
location where you've mailed this and get it and and they'll wait. I mean, there's nothing, you know, if really? a motivated person could just ask you to do that and you'd be back where you started. So I'm, I, you know, the, the solutions just didn't feel good to me. It didn't, it didn't feel good. Like I could really recommend any of those yeah. um, complicated sort of protocols. So I was looking for, and you know, none of the, none of the highly technical solutions I found are available yet either, but it gets you thinking about, options and where could we go um, from a science point of view yeah by the way just uh, just uh, for your information just uh, yeah. just in case you're curious I've actually used the I'd love to comply but I can't approach in life <laughs> Good for you. Um, not in the way that you would think though I mean when I was in middle school there was this girl that wanted to date me but I was too young to be to, to be allowed to date and so I literally told her I would if I could but I can't so I won't. There you go. And in retrospect, that was probably the dumbest thing that I could have said to her. <laughs> Interesting. Yeah, yeah. So I've used the, I'd love to comply, but I can't. Um, yeah. So I'm just I mean, curious. The alternative, yeah. well, the alternative go- to that, though, is, you know, there's nothing to see here either. We can try to um, convince the person that they don't really want to look at whatever we have. That that usually doesn't work. So we end up in some kind of compliance dance where, you know, and and my idea was just to, to remove the discussion entirely. Let's just not have this discussion because our technology doesn't even let us. So. Yeah. And, you know, before we started talking to you, Terry, our producer, was talking about how there are some uh, terrorist groups who may not even bring a phone or, you know, have very limited access to the phone so that there's nothing that can be accessed by by people they don't want to have access to. And I think that would seems like that would raise flags too for somebody in today's day and age to to show up and not have a cell phone. Yeah, so that's the other thing. Um some knee-jerk reactions initially to this where, well, just don't take your devices with you. And I'm thinking, oh, my goodness, Kenny, have you been on a trip where you didn't need your devices? I mean, <laughs> yeah. you know, what's the first thing everybody does when the plane lands is pull out their phone and, and Facebook about it or something. But it's just, you know, this is in modern life, we need to have our devices with us. And, yes, it's going to arouse suspicion if, if you don't have them as much as um, it would arouse suspicion if you acted sketchy with them or refused to comply. So, you know, it's, it, I'm not very convinced about the argument about leaving them at home. I will say, though, um, you mentioned terrorist groups. So one of the um, sort of side pieces of this whole discussion is the harvesting of social media passwords, which is, I think, a different, slightly different set of concerns than um, asking for a password to a device. In other words, to unlock a cell phone is different than asking for a password to a social media account. Slightly we don't usually use biometrics and stuff to to lock down our um, our social media accounts. There's there's a lot more social media accounts that we may have. Um, yeah, so it's just it's just slightly different. Yeah, something else to think about. So I'm curious in your work. Uh, obviously, you you think a lot about passwords, but what are, are are there any applications that you use or that you would suggest over others? Yeah, so you, I get a lot of questions. What do I do? You know, so my general advice is in three parts. The first bit is we need to have good password hygiene. So we're going to use a different password on each site. That can and it's got to be a nice, good password, not you know one, two, three, four, five, six, or password, which are 
Dang it, you just guessed my password. I know, I always do that. Those are still the most common passwords used. Those are terrible. Don't do that. So to help you generate better passwords and to keep track of all these different ones, a lot of folks will recommend a password manager, which is great. Um, Unfortunately, sometimes those those have exploits or get hacked or whatever, so you need to keep current on the software. Um, That's my first line of defense. I would also recommend closing down accounts that you don't use. So a lot of times folks will make an account um, you know, for some social media service or an email thing, and then they end up moving on and not using that anymore. You should really close those accounts down. Um, it provides a, a stale password that could end up in a password breach somewhere, and then that account could be used to you know, sort of jump into other accounts that you may own. And then the third one, I would say, this is a little bit harder, but it's definitely worth it. If the site that you're looking at, the social media site or email or whatever it is you're doing, offers two-factor authentication, and I'll explain what that is in a minute, do it. Do this. (laughs) Take them up on the offer to install two-factor authentication. What this will do is allow you to not just have a password on your account, but also have like a special code sent to your phone or to your um, email or some other um, place. So it's a, it's a two-step sign-in process. So even if your password is um, you know, stolen, you'll still need that second factor, that second piece, um, in order to actually get into the account. Yeah. And, you know, Megan, and I believe it was in the either the first or second point that you just made there, yeah. um, a lot of people will just hold on to these passwords and memberships that they don't yeah. use. But there, another problem is, you know, there are things that I sign up for uh, that I just don't remember signing up for. And so maybe I'm yeah. a member of it and I didn't even I didn't even realize it. You know, and a lot of people can say this about credit cards, too. You know, there's a credit card that they signed up for that they never use. Is right. there is there a way that we can go on our computer and figure out a, a list or see a list of all these things that we have passwords for so that we can then go and, and uh, you know, cancel our membership or get rid of that password. Oh, that's interesting. I wish there were. Probably the best thing would be a lot of times they send you a, you know, a verification email or something like that. You could um, try to, you know, spelunk through your old emails and try to figure it out. I really don't know of a, of a way to generate post facto that list of um, all the places I've ever signed up. That, that's a, it's a good idea. Um, I don't think it's going to be quite that easy. We, yeah. Um, a lot of times I'll use as a reminder though, is if every once in a while, some old site will send me some email, you know, and I'll say, Oh man, I remember I signed up for that. I'm going to take right now to delete that account. (laughs) So, um, so take advantage of those little annoying emails that they're sending you some kind of marketing message or whatever to go ahead and remind yourself to delete that one. They usually don't, um, if you've created an account at one of those sites, they're probably going to want to bring you back in as a regular user. So they will do things like email you and so on. Um, and those would be the times that, that you can shut down the account and just sort of sever ties, I guess. Yeah. So, Megan, just in closing here, you know, we talked about the example of of uh, U.S. Customs and, and going across the border. What can we do if if we feel like you or if we think that U.S. Customs has compromised our personal information or our devices? What's something that we can do? 
Yeah, so it's going to be really unlikely that this would happen. But if it does, um, what, what I would recommend is first and foremost, write down everything that happened, how long your device was gone, what you think happened to it, questions you were asked, and so on. There's, um, then when you get back, Google around for places to report that. Several news agencies and the Electronic Frontier Foundation, for example, are taking reports of what happened so we can start to keep track. And then you need to change all your passwords. <laughs> um, that's annoying, but you're going to need to do that. And then probably let everyone in your life that you know might be affected by you know what happened, let them know so that they can also take measures um, for example, if you had sensitive communications or things with your business, your company, um, colleagues, things like that, go ahead and, and let them know um, that that copies may have been made and so on. So it's kind of a, a bad um, it's a bad thing to happen, but it's also very unlikely to happen. So. Well, that's comforting. And, and Megan, we appreciate you coming on to the Matt Townsend Show this morning and uh, really just shedding some more light on passwords and it's if if nothing else it uh, it helped us to think about the passwords that we do enter and and the memberships that we do have that maybe we don't uh, use at all so it's best to be safe rather than sorry so if you're out there and uh, you have a really weak password or you have a membership to a, a site that you no longer use just make sure that you're safe and uh, keep those updated or just cancel them altogether Her name is Megan Squire, and she is a professor of computing science at Elon University in North Carolina. She also co-founded and uh, led a project called FlossMole, a team of software developers who write programs to collect and analyze floss data, then freely provide the data and results back to the scientific community. And uh, Megan has been speaking to us about why we shouldn't know our own passwords. We're going to take a quick break. This is the Matt Townsend Show. When we come back, we'll be speaking with our own producer, McKenna Baus. McKenna Baus will be in the house when we return. Welcome to her house. She is McKenna Baus. She is here to break down. Welcome back to the Matt Townsend Show, and welcome to the House of Baus. It is that time of the week. We get three times during the week where we get to talk to our wonderful producer, McKenna Baus, who is uh, here to tell me that the reason that I'm coming down with this cold might be because I'm feeling lonely. I am so lonely. I have no clue. Isn't there like a chipmunk version of that song? Probably. There's a chipmunk song of everything if yeah, you try hard true. enough. It's a really annoying chipmunk song. <laughs> <laughs> so McKenna, what is, what what are you serious? Yeah, so there was a study that was conducted um and what they did is they took um they took some people and they locked them in hotel rooms after having like in like done like nose spray things that had the cold virus in it. And oh my. what? Yeah. What kind of compensation are these people getting? They all because... got over a thousand dollars, which is <clears throat> explains they got to call a in lot. Sick for work. That too. <laughs> um, but what happened is like at the beginning they had them, you know, take a little survey, like, how lonely are you on a scale of one to ten? I, I something like that. Hmm. I'm and ten then, lonely. <laughs> 
And then what they did is they had them sort of report their symptoms. And their loneliness didn't affect whether or not they got sick. But of the people who got sick, those who had like who ranked as lonely were 39% more likely to report higher severity symptoms. Like my runny nose is worse because I'm lonely and my throat hurts more because I'm lonely and stuff like that. So is this – I mean is this more of a psychological thing? Because it seems like, you know, I've got got two kids and I feel like they're always sick. And so you would think that somebody that is surrounded with other people in their home, there's going to be a bigger likelihood or a greater likelihood that that person will get sick more often. So – you know, there is that exposure to more people is more likely to get you sick. And that's why your loneliness thing doesn't affect if you get sick. It's just how bad your sickness is. Because one of the things that this, you know, they talked about in this article, too, is that social interaction, like having a lot of contact with people does not necessarily equal not lonely. You can have a ton of social contact with people and still feel very lonely. Um, and so it's that feeling of loneliness as opposed to your actual amount of contact with other people that's what's affected, like affecting your symptoms. Yeah, it kind of uh. it kind of seems like there's some psychology here because there are certain people that probably get plenty of attention. But they kind of suffer from the woe is me syndrome. Yeah, or they you know? just like feel like I can't connect with Nobody all these people. Gets me. Nobody yeah. Yeah. And so I think those somebody's people crying are gonna... out for help right here. <laughs> Nobody gets me. You you okay there? <laughs> I'm sick. Um but it's interesting because there has been some, you know, past research too that, you know, people who are more isolated and I mean, if you are more isolated, you're more likely to be lonely. But some of these people who have, you know, more isolations are more likely to suffer from heart disease and things like this. And mm. just generally, what they're thinking is that your emotional state, particularly when it comes to relationships with other people and loneliness, does affect your immune system. That when you're mentally not feeling good, your body physically isn't going to be on its, you know, top game and that you're going to be more affected by your symptoms. I think another thing that was just interesting is the idea that I I wonder if you're feeling lonely, you know, you just don't have anything else to distract you and maybe your symptoms just feel worse because you're just so focused on it. Um, Another thing I was just wondering, I don't know if this is why the man cold is so bad. Maybe guys are just more lonely than girls. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, we are. We are. Because guys don't go on man dates, but girls go on girl dates. Yeah. I don't know, man. I go on man dates every once in a while. But you're still lonely, so it's not working. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> hey, anyway, I'm just curious real quick. Uh, did it say how many people were in this study? And you, you mentioned that they, were in a, they put them in a hotel. Yeah. So there were 159 participants um, and they ranged in age from 18 to 55. So they sort of, you know, ran the gamut there. Um, Yeah. And they were in a hotel for five days. Wow. See, that is why they really got sick, because they stayed the night in a hotel where they don't wash those uh, comforters and all sorts of other disgusting. All those dust mites. and Yeah. Hotel, not the cleanest place to. Uh, also, you know they kind of got injected in their nose with you know the virus. So yeah, mostly the hotel. The 
it's an incubator for discussing. Like exactly, I, I like going on vacation and going to hotels. Don't because they all me smell like okay. bleach and, and I won't. Pine just uh, yeah, there are certain things you should never touch in that room. Most most things you should never touch in the hotel room. Anyway, McKenna, you've done it again. And, uh, man, sounds like I need to go associate with more people and then I'll be healthier. Get your mandates in. I'm yes. here for you. Okay. All right. We're going to take a quick break. When we come back, uh, well, you'll hear the BBC News first. But then we're going to continue the fun with Deep Dish Pizza Day as well as First Contact Day. This is the Matt Townsend Show. We'll be right back. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Good Wednesday morning, everyone. This is Jeff Simpson covering for Dr. Matt on the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt is still in beautiful St. George, and uh, we promised that we would share a, a, a piece of his personal information until he came back. And uh, I think his tomorrow... favorite cereal is... <laughs> favorite cereal? I'm guessing it's like Count Chocula or something. Oh, that's a good one. Um, but yeah, I think tomorrow we'll share his social security number. Tune in for that. Anyway, today is a very special day because we are celebrating First Contact Day. I didn't know that there was a day that celebrated the seventh Star Trek film, but apparently it's it's more than just that. It's the event in that film. Okay, let where me... humans broke the warp barrier. Go ahead. Yeah, I'll read it. Uh, it's the technical version of what you just said. In 2063, <laughs> Zephram Cochran first took a flight at speeds in excess of warp one. Zephram... Cochran, go ahead. Yes. Uh, <laughs> you did right, Jeff. Alerted, what did I say? You said Zephram. I'm just re, okay. re, just okay. emphasizing the importance of Zephram. Cochran, go ahead. Okay. Alerting the Vulcan race to their entrance into the interstellar community and initiating first contact. Some 300 years later, it was commemorated as First Contact Day. So we're, now we're talking 2363-ish. Right. First contact is an important part of a species' introduction into the galactic community and is handled very carefully by the extant species of Starfleet. It's big news. You don't make contact with a, with a world until they figure out warp speed. Because once they figure out warp speed, then they're going to be out there bumping around with everyone else. So you might as well contact them and say, hey, you're not alone. We don't even have flying cars yet. No, of course not. Why? Why would you have a flying car? Google's working on it, but... I think it's a waste. Waste of money, time. Eh. I think that those resources could be uh, handled or better put to use elsewhere, uh, such as getting Flamazon to deliver packages on time. Anyway, uh, also deep dish pizza day. I'm a pepperoni and sausage kind of a guy. What about you, Terry? Pizza. He's not picky. Just pizza. Yeah. Pizza. Wow. I'll take any of it. Yeah. Within reason. Little Caesars, yeah. is that within reason? You know, if we're, if we're at a, <laughs> I mean, it, it if I'm not paying for it, then it's fine. I don't go to the grocery store and get the frozen pizza. 
Some of okay. that, I mean, because the problem is, if you want to get something quality, you got to spend the money, and at that point, just go get some, get a pizza. Don't don't get something no one, in the grocery no one, store. I don't think anyone like willingly, or I don't think anyone craves Little Caesar. I think it's just a necessity thing. It's just like I want pizza. I have five dollars. I can go pick it up real fast. You had one last night, didn't you? It's like Funyuns. No one no. really, no one really likes Funyuns. A few days ago, there was a fight apparently on Twitter, which happens. And, and can actually really? involve just a small amount of people, but it tends to make some waves because it just keeps going as people retweet and stuff like that. Yeah. Um, a guy took a pizza and he melted Peeps, you know, the marshmallow oh, <laughs> Easter candy Peeps. He, he put them on top of the pizza and warmed it up and melted all these Peeps on the pizza. And he says it's great. The marshmallow, the tomato sauce, the cheese. It's, it's just sweet all mixes and savory. Together. Yeah. Says it's great. It's like dipping fries in a shake. So we're taking away this guy's voting rights. Well, right? yeah. The response was, "Is this like?" He actually said that this is better than pineapple on pizza. <laughs> okay, just stop right there. And so then the question is, is it? Because I know pineapple is a very polarizing topic when it's placed on a pizza. Yeah, we had a caller call in about pineapple. Yeah, was, we don't really take calls. No, that's how polarizing it was. She was motivated <laughs> to call, but this guy put. Peeps, marshmallow peeps, and see so you get oh, that goodness. that crunchy, sugary what flavor though. What was it the flavor? I guess it's they're not flavored, but like was color? it color? They were multicolored. He had pink ones and yellow ones oh. and blue ones. They just sort of melted into you this just gotta sort get of the pink ones. Color a smear across the top of the pizza. It's kind of gross. This guy's going to be the next Papa John. I can see yeah. it already. He's got franchises <laughs> available, so call him. Disgusting. <laughs> Keep it anyway. Wow. Well, Terry, what's going on around the rest of the country that we should be aware of? Former National Security Advisor Susan Rice denied on Tuesday that she was responsible for what they're calling unmasking the names of top Trump officials, as was claimed in reports on Monday. Absolutely not for any political purposes to spy, expose anything. But Did you let me leak the name of Mike Flynn? I leaked nothing to nobody and never have and never would. Rice denied that she or any Obama administration official used intelligence for political purposes, while she said President Donald Trump's unsubstantiated claim that former President Barack Obama ordered a wiretap on Trump Tower had no basis in fact. She acknowledged that it was possible that Trump officials were subject to incidental surveillance, meaning the uh, NSA, CIA, FBI group of people were listening to somebody else, and maybe a Trump administration official called them, and that's how they recorded it. And what, she, what uh, Rice was saying was at her role as, as national security advisor, she would look at intelligence and be like, okay, who are these people calling? She can look at those things. And so, yeah, there was an unmasking. There was a revealing of the identity of the American citizen who was caught up in the wiretapping. But then she didn't go share that widely with everyone else. She was just saying, okay, who is this? All right, and then moved on. Sounds like a Scooby-Doo ending. I would have gotten away with it, too, if it weren't for you meddling kids. Stephen Colbert last night did a segment where he compared it to Scooby-Doo. Oh, perfect. I didn't see that. Um, uh, Moving on, on Tuesday, Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell filed to formally start debate on the nomination of uh, Judge Neil Gorsuch to the Supreme Court, starting the clock on the major showdown about Senate minority rights and institutional traditions which I think a very small segment of people actually care about. The Senate will start holding <laughs> votes on Thursday, like uh, likely ending the Repu- with the Republicans using the nuclear option to end the filibuster and overcome Democratic resistance. On Tuesday night, Political reported that in a 2006 book, 
and earlier academic articles, Gorsuch had copied the structure and language used by several authors and failed to cite source material, throwing a last-minute charge of plagiarism into the bitter partisan battle. So they're digging deep here. Oh, now now the guy plagiarized. Ooh, wow. It's horribly plagiarized. <laughs> Senator Jeff Merkley has spoken for hours on the Senate floor in protest of the nomination of Neil Gorsuch to the United States Supreme Court. He began speaking around 4 p.m. Eastern. The Oregon Democratic Senator is hoping to rally support for, for of the filibuster of Gorsuch. So I believe he's still talking right now. <laughs> right? He's been going for over 12 He's hours. still going. He had these these uh, posters up talking about a Supreme Court justice who was nominated in 1808 and the situation surrounding him. I'm like, seriously, dude? Wow. 1808 is the reference we're going with? So, so he's going to come to work sounding like me tomorrow. I don't know. He hasn't gone home yet. He's just going to be Sheesh. there. It's just the thing where, like, if I never left, you left and came back, and I was still sitting at my desk. He's probably hungry. Somebody get him a Peeps pizza. <laughs> yeah, Peeps pizza. Um, according to the Department of Homeland Security Secretary John Kelly, the number of arrests of people illegally entering the U.S. at the Mexican border plummeted during the month of March. According to Kelly's written testimony to a Senate panel, fewer than 12,500 people were caught last month, down from the 43,000 detained in February. According to the Associated Press, March's number was the lowest monthly figure in 17 years and is likely a sign that fewer people are trying to sneak into the country. Kelly praised President Trump's tough talk on immigration and said that the the decline in arrests is thus no accident. Hmm. People are hearing President Trump and they're backing off is what they're saying. It might be because it's cold. Oh, They don't want to walk across the Frozen, not frozen, but a, a cold desert in this time of year. That's kind of... That might have something to do with it. Sometimes, because usually in the summer... It picks back up. Now, I don't know why January or what it said, February had 43,000 detained. Hmm. And then March had 12. I'm not sure what that is, but a lot of the time they say He's getting it done. The numbers drop. So, and finally, every White House press secretary has some particular verbal tics. Oh, I can't wait to hear what you're going to say. There's things they say. And uh, Sean Spicer is also someone who has a lot of verbal tics. And people have made a lot of compilation videos where they take all of these he says one word or he calls out the uh the abc political uh reporter he says his name all the time so they put all those clips together it's just kind of funny and it, it's <laughs> it's life in front of a camera people can do this to you well last night uh, Stephen colbert's late show did that with the word phenomenal because he says phenomenal all the time I think the president has done a phenomenal job. We're doing a phenomenal job of staffing the government. I think the relationship with Mexico is phenomenal, 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 phenomenal. This is incredible. Phenomenal. 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 That was Trump. Trump said it at the end, and then crickets. Wow! Yeah, so they they had that. I think that was the open to their show last night. <laughs> kind of funny. That was phenomenal. Yeah. My goodness. Ah, oh, they've man, that didn't take them long to crack that to figure out no. what his ticks are. Well, he's got a lot of ticks. He sweats a lot too. Um, call him sweaty, Sean. Oh, spicy. Okay, it's time for a little truth here. Okay. Were you ever suspended from school? I don't know if school knew I was there. 
I had in-school suspension once because a kid punched me in the face. In-school suspension. And so I detention. told a lie about it. I oh. said I didn't get punched Ooh. in the face. I said, I said I had allergies so that I could get an ice pack and not. Mm. But then I got it. That a, makes no sense. He yeah, got I know. punched. His face swelled up. And I said, and he hey, said, I, I need, need an, an ice pack. pack. They said, like, what's what wrong? Happened? I said, I had allergies. And then they find out I got punched in the face and they gave me detention. So huh. to prevent further uh, beatings from this bully, you we – bo- well, we, we both got sent to detention. OK. But, but I don't wow. know why I got sent. You lied. About about what? You I lied didn't want to tell under. I got punched in the you face. You lied under oath. Oh yeah, after I got punched in the face. What are they doing? You lied. To them. That's school. why they put you there. It was middle school. They're teaching you how to be a upstanding member of society. Not I still, lie. I still haven't learned. No. I guess. <laughs> By the way, uh, all the awkward, horrible stuff that happens to you as a, a teenager will happen in middle school. Hmm. Uh, So nearly half the students at a high school in Pennsylvania, capital city, have been given suspension notices for missing too much class time. Almost half. Officials at Harrisburg High School gave the notices to 500 students on Monday as part of a crackdown by the school's new principal. Officials say the students accumulated too many unexcused absences. At least 100 students served one-day suspensions on Tuesday, and I think 50 of those were punched by bullies in the face. School officials are working with the parents of other students and say many parents have provided documentation to explain the absences. Principal Lisa Love oh, wow. says students often come to school but then skip class instead loitering in hallways and other parts of the large school. She says she needed to do something radical to get students' attention. Is she a new principal? Yes. Yeah. So this is part of a crackdown. She's, she's trying to change behavior. Yeah. yeah. So I heard a news story once, uh, pretty recently actually, where to, to uh, eradicate the number of suspensions, they were – Instead of sending the kids home for the suspension, they would have to come to school with their mom. Right. Their schools would do that. And uh, apparently it works extremely well. Oh, yeah. They're, they're having phenomenal results with it. Phenomenal. I think that would work for me. Yeah. Once or twice. Oh, my over. goodness. Yeah. One, I mean, The first time you're irate, the second time is like, we're just done. We're, I think the threat of it, I would, I would still just be like. Yeah. The car ride over to school with your mom would be enough to change my mind. Where do I park, honey? And then that, I'm not saying that I don't love my mother, but you you don't. It's it's. Yeah. Your mom doesn't belong at school with you. No. Wow. So <laughs> maybe they ought to adopt that little. Uh, way of thinking. Do you want some baseball food? Yes, always. Baseball food. Um, I have a list, so we'll probably keep this going. Okay. Uh, Miami Mex Taco Dog. The Miami Marlins. The you, Miami Mex Taco Dog. You had me with Miami Mex Taco and then lost me a dog. Yeah, it's a hot dog. It's baseball. You have to mix in a hot dog somehow, <laughs> right? So this this food, a foot-long hot dog covered with chili con carne which is chili and meat, right? Monterey Jack cheese, cilantro, shaved cabbage, salsa, and jalapeno lime aioli. Okay, that sounds amazing. 
Um, wrapped in a tortilla because that's the only way you're going to keep all the toppings on a, a hot dog. That's okay. a lot. Of, you start thinking about that's it, like it starts piling up on the hot dog, and you can't actually get to the hot dog because there's all the stuff. I'm guessing flour because those are the only ones that are big enough. I imagine maybe yeah. corn. I mean, oh, corn. Would be maybe good. you could opt. Who knows? But yeah, so big hot dog, foot long hot dog. All those toppings wrapped in a tortilla. See now, if they did it with a corn tortilla, then you could say it's also a corn dog. Could be. Um, another one yep. here: the New York Mets. Mm-hmm. S'mores covered bacon. What? I'd try it. You give it a shot. Yeah, I would give it a shot as well. Let's see if they explain it here. Um, I think that's basically it. You have bacon, <laughs> and <laughs> I think we get it from yeah, the name. You have a s'mores and chocolate and marshmallow, all that. Maybe graham cracker, right? Yeah. Put that on top. Okay. Can be complete without graham cracker. Hmm. I, I think it's complete with the bacon. That's. It can stop and end there. So okay, pretty much it's the bacon. Yeah, once you put the bacon, the bacon and everyone's like, "Oh man," because you think of s'mores and you're like, "Ah, I've had that it's before." All right. I mean, I guess. When has bacon not been a selling point? The selling point, really. I don't know. My wife. I'm thinking, should I tell the story? I'm going to tell the story. <laughs> that means yes. Over the weekend, my wife was making a, a salad. We're going to go eat with my family, uh-huh. my parents and everything. And so she made this. It's like a, a bacon pea salad thing. And she's cooking the bacon and it kind of got a little little too well done. Yes. It wasn't like charbroiled, but you know, it gets to the point where it's like crunchy. It's not crisp. If that yeah. makes any sense. Yeah. And I'm eating it. I'm fine. No problem. Like, yeah, it's bacon. So she but made bacon like, bits. Basically, yeah. She's like, is this too much? And I'm like, just put it in. No one's going to notice because, you know, it tastes like bacon. It's and bacon. it was fine. No one cared. But, I, I mean, she's over there like, oh, it tastes burnt. It's like we have a burnt <laughs> salad. And I go, no one noticed. Look, everyone's just challenged. And they just ate the whole thing. So. Bacon, Bingo. it's like French fries. You know, it doesn't matter how long they've been sitting out and they're cold. Even if you reheat them and they don't, you'll you'll suffer through it. Right. Because they're French fries. They're French fries. You're just going to eat it. <laughs> Same yeah. thing with bacon. Wow. Suffer through the pain. Well, I, I, I'm speechless after that. Now I just – I can't stop thinking about this bacon. Oh. You ate breakfast. Well, I uh, I didn't listen to my instincts this morning to, to have bacon, which is interesting because our next guest is going to be talking about outsmarting your instincts in the workplace. Interesting subject. When we return, this is the Matt Townsend Show. We'll be right back. When you encounter a dangerous situation or difficult decision, you'll often hear advice to trust your instincts. Our primal instincts kept our ancestors alive, but our next guest, Ed Harrington, who is the CEO at ideas to go argues that trusting our instincts at work might be hurting instead of helping us. Ed, welcome to the Matt Townsend Show. Uh, thank you for having me. So this Glad is a, this is a really interesting topic. I'm curious to know how you uh, came across this topic or, or what got uh, what garnered your interest in this topic? Well, I've always worked in marketing, and it seems to uh, be the case that I'm always gravitated to new products and new ideas. And when you do that work, you're often the outlier in an organization, you know, a lot of questions about what's going on. And then I happened to be on a panel, uh, an advisory board at the Yale Center for Customer Insights, something near and dear to me, and uh, they are 
probably premier in the country when it comes to behavioral economics and the impact how our brain works has on how we think innovatively or rather how it counters innovative thinking. So kind of my profession and my, uh, my role on that have, have brought me here, shall we say. And maybe personally, because I, I, I myself am a very critical kind of person, and uh, being critical is not the best way to come up with new thoughts and new approaches to things. Right. So I, needed to, I needed to cure myself. Yeah. You know, obviously, this is a topic that would appeal to so many people out there. I mean, you just you don't even have to look much further than the TV programs that are that are so office centric. And I think there's even, uh, you know, an iteration of of the TV show The Office in, you know, a dozen or so countries. I'm just curious here, you know, in your book, you mentioned that uh, you believe that anything can be improved. What are some avenues that people should look at to improve their work environment? Well, I, you know, the, the, the first thing, Jeff, is to check out your attitude and to check out how people react to thoughts and new ideas. And the tendency is to be negative and critical. You know, like I said, same, same for me. You know, I'm, I'm not looking for trouble. I'm looking to avoid it. <laughs> so uh, the fact of the matter is, though, when people criticize things um, or are negative, they tend to get more weight than those people who are positive. So, uh, or as it says in the book, you know, the equation is that bad outweighs good. So the first thing I would say to people is, hey, look at how you're treating ideas, um, new approaches to things. See how open you are when you're problem solving. A lot of people enter problem solving and immediately begin to look at what might go wrong with every solution. Um, Best way in the world to kill a solution is to just basically damn it by saying that won't work. That won't work. Hmm. As, as opposed to challenging yourself and your colleagues to say, wait a minute, um, well, let's set that rule aside and say, how can we get it to work? Or if you identify an issue, uh, you know, it's going to be too expensive. Well, instead of saying it's too expensive, let's kill that idea. Let's just throw that one away. Say, okay, how could we either do it more cheaply or how could we find the funding to accomplish this problem? I mean, that's just a huge one. And that's all about what's called negativity bias. And, you know, the book is very much focused on these different biases that we are hardwired for. And negativity is probably the mother of all those cognitive biases. So, Ed, just as kind of a follow-up to that, uh, you know, you mentioned checking your attitude and and not being so fast to poo-poo an idea. Uh, <laughs> do you... Do you adopt the mindset the 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 mindset that's so prevalent of uh, no idea is a bad idea? Um, uh, so here's what I'll I'll answer that on two levels, Jeff. Um, absolutely, we adopt that attitude, right? We we when when we're looking at something either a problem or an opportunity, and even setting something up as a problem is already going down a negative path, right? So you could say, what's the opportunity as opposed to what's the problem here? Um, and in that world, everything goes, anything goes. Um, there are two reasons for that. One is if you critique every idea that comes along, it's going to take you forever to generate any kinds of solutions or approaches to things. Number two, it just sets up a bad dynamic in a, in a work situation, right? If, if what you see is everyone's critiquing things, guess what happens? Uh, and I've asked 
at least 5,000 people this question. What happens when people start to put down your idea? How do you react, Jeff, if you're contributing to a group? Yeah, you know, I, I would probably be less likely to contribute again, especially people that are not used to uh, being the ones to contribute. Absolutely. So what people do, and the number one answer is, I shut down. I simply become a non-contributor. And I always follow up with, okay, well, let's say you have to contribute, right? Because your boss is there or somebody is there and, and that's your job. What do you end up contributing? And the answer is safe ideas that are already accepted. Because I, I don't want to be put down. Well, that's not going to get you new territory. Now, just to follow up on are all ideas good ideas, I always like to say absolutely. But when we get through, so we do this in our company. We do this for other companies. We help them come up with ideas. We may generate with them 800 ideas. In the end, only 10 make it through the filter. Um, so you could actually say, in truth, maybe 2% end up being good enough. But you got to let every idea come out. Um, you know, there's an example in the book. So we teach people how to do this thing called foreignness, right? So look at an idea, say everything you like about it, and then instead of doing cons, ask questions about how you might improve it and how you might uh, leverage that idea in different ways. And the example that we give, and we give a lot of times to our clients, is here's a sink, right? It's your bathroom sink, and it's lined with fur, lined with fur. So tell me everything you like about that and everything that you, um, where you have concerns. What's so my question to you is, what's good about a fur-lined sink? Well, it might it might look and feel nice. Very good. But uh, other than that, I don't know that I have a whole lot of use for it. <laughs> and we could probably I, – I could sit with you and push you a little bit, and I bet you'd find others. So, for example, who might like a fur-lined sink? Uh, a woman or a fur connoisseur. Yeah, and so you, we're getting a couple of things. Um, I want a really luxurious, appealing-looking sink. Um, I want a sink that's actually geared towards different segments of the population. So what we've got is not, in the end, a fur-lined sink, but new avenues to explore if what we're trying to invent or create are new, our new styles of sink. Interesting. And it, yeah, and one of the big deals, too, is I always tell people – there is a tendency to be very literal and look at the, um, you know, the functional aspects of something. But you also want to think experientially. So try to imagine what it would feel like, what it would look like, who might use it, when they might use it, why they might use it, because that'll get you beyond things like a sink of fur. I'll tell you the number one reaction is that's gross. <laughs> you know, the, 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 uh, if the, the un for the untrained and the uninitiated and what we call this foreignness thinking, right? What do you, yeah. think, what do you wish was differently? It's gross. I actually did have one client and I will only say that he was a banker. He couldn't get over it. Um, <laughs> he, he, he just, every time he looked up, he goes, that is disgusting. That yeah. is wow. And I kept saying, that's not the point, Jack. That's not the point, Jack. The point is, you know, how could you play with this thing? So we, we say, what are you for? And then, well, what do you wish for differently? So the answer comes up, of course, I, I want it. I, I wish it was hygienic. You know, that's going to catch right. all sorts of things. So what do we get out of that? Hey, what about a hygienic or self-cleaning sink? Right? Mm. Oh, okay. Well, that's a, that's a new idea for sinks. And, and, you know, sometimes you have to push people back to the objective. We're not here to prove out a furline sink. We're here to come up with new ideas for sinks that might hit the market and do really well. 
right? So yeah. that's when you're coming up with new product ideas. It's it's really in the improv world they call it yes and. Yes. We we say we say no yes but but in the improv world it's yes and build on this. Bring it further. Don't kill the idea when it's, you know, uh, in the bathwater, so to speak. Yeah, and I, you you kind of touched on this, but it seems like maybe the the idea behind uh, no idea is a bad idea. Maybe that's said because eventually you're going to get to the really good idea, but that you may not have gotten to otherwise if you hadn't thrown out all those other uh, not as good ideas. Bingo. Yes. And and sometimes you throw out a bad idea to be provocative. Sure. So, you know, it, it, although, trust me, there are times people throw out bad ideas, and they're just bad ideas. So. <laughs> um, <laughs> and I can say that in the back of my head, uh, but it, but when I'm, you know, up front, it's like, no, we're all comers. We take all, all ideas are, are, are welcome. Um, but in truth, we have a, an exercise we go through sometimes, and this is something anybody can do. Um, you got to have the support of your management because... It is the type of thing where, uh, taken out of context, you'd be fired. Um, and, in fact, that's the, the little game we play. We challenge people to come up with an idea so bad they'll get fired. Interesting. Whatever that happens to be. You know, so yours is for the radio. Um, hey, we're going to do five hours of silence every day. Yeah. Like, what? Yeah. <laughs> oh, what's that? I, I'm trying to think of the uh, the the musician who wrote the piece that's, you know, a minute and five seconds of silence. But, you know, you're like, yeah, I don't think that's it. But then, <laughs> you know, the, the point is, how could you leverage that? You know, how could you leverage that into something that's different? So maybe uh, it's actually just a minute of silence. Maybe it's a minute of uproarious laughter. Who knows? Um, but again, what we're looking for is to provoke people's thinking in that particular case in terms of how to move forward and but not move forward so much as in to stretch into no, uh, new domains. Yeah. You know, people, people, we, we want to be safe. You know, people don't want to change things. You know, if they wanted to change them, they change them. They like the status quo. So they want to keep it the same way. Another bias, by the way, status quo bias. Yeah. So Ed, why, you... why fix, why fix it? Yeah. You mentioned people that are just trying to be provocative when they're throwing out ideas. How do you handle uh, those people that are just – they're trying to be funny or they're just trying to be a jerk about it or they're just trying to show you that, look, I don't even want to be here in the first place? Um, Well, I can't demonstrate for you on the radio, but I give them a look of death. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) But the truth of the matter is you humor them along to some degree, and you keep them in the fold. And I will tell you that that humor and lightheartedness goes a long way here. Um, we definitely get, you know, you, you can't always determine who's going to come into a session. And if you're at work, you got to work with all your colleagues. And with people like that, you, the best thing to do is to try to turn that idea on its head, um, if you can. I mean, if they're being overly negative, I'll call them out on it, quite frankly, if it gets to that point, though you usually don't have to. So I guess the best answer, Jeff, is we preempt it by training folks in how to train and how to treat ideas. And once a group is trained that way, what you can depend on actually is the group to enforce the rules, because most people get it. You know, we have this thing where we say uh, often the response to an idea is, yes, but, uh, you know, Division A tried that. And it was a huge failure. 
and you're going to fail. So we say, okay, yes, but is what we're going to get rid of here, because most people who do that will start out as though they're agreeing with you, yes, and then they immediately give you the damning um, judgment of your idea. If you train the group not to do that and do that foreignist stuff or the yes and that I talked about, um, often the group will turn on that person. So, you know, it's, it's, it could be me, but if you can get the group to do it, that's good. If it's me personally, often those folks are pretty strong-willed, and you can put them down pretty, like, you can be very brass tacks with them and say, hey, you got to stop that right now. This is how we're going along. I mean, you don't want to be there, and it doesn't really, frankly, happen um, that often overall. Um, but they're pretty, uh, they're pretty thick-skinned often. And yeah. they'll, they'll shut up for a while, and then they'll come right back in. You know, And, and so you, know, you want to be sensitive to the group, and you're not going to do anybody mental harm, et cetera. But depend on the group to do it, and when push comes to shove, tell them, look, it, that's not the rules. I make the rules. Here are the rules. Ed, let's do this. Let's take a break. And uh, when we come back, I want to keep talking to you uh, about uh, this idea of gut instincts in the workplace. Uh, So let's do that. Let's take a break. When we come back, we will continue that discussion. His name is Ed Harrington, and he is the CEO at ideas to go and has spent a lifetime helping business leaders come up with new and innovative ideas. And we're enjoying a very interesting conversation right now, which we will continue when we come back. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Welcome back to the Matt Townsend Show. We've been speaking with Ed Harrington, who is the CEO at ideas to go Ed Harrington also uh, spent over 25 years facilitating ideation and concept development sessions for Fortune 500 companies, and uh, he is also the co-author of the book Outsmart Your Instincts, How the Behavioral Innovation Approach Drives Your Company Forward. Ed, welcome back to the Matt Townsend Show. Thank you. So uh, in the book, you you talk about this idea of your gut feeling and how more often than not, our gut feeling in the workplace might not be correct. Now, talk talk more about that. The um, I don't know if you're familiar with Malcolm Gladwell Gladwell in the the um, the book Blink, right? In which he talks about um, often your instincts are correct. But often your instincts are correct in sort of going along with the crowd or guessing what other people are thinking. Um, if I go back to like you brought up the, you know, we're, we're back in the days of living in caves. But even today, I would tell you, if you're walking through the woods and you hear something large, what at least seems to be large, but it's crashing through the forest, um, your instinct is to run away. Um, the people who said, hey, I wonder what that is, and then came out and then suddenly there was a... Uh, you know, a, a, a tiger or something, and it eats you up, and everyone else looks sure. at it. I don't think I'll, I think I'll trust my instincts. At work, so Daniel Kahneman, fabulous, amazing economist, wrote a Nobel Prize laureate, wrote a book called Thinking Fast and Slow. Gut instinct is thinking fast. It's our auto response. It's, it's just literally wired within us, and a lot of these biases um, center around it. But what that's going to get you is the surface and the obvious answer. 
it's not going to get you the deeper, different, or further out thinking. So if you trust with your gut or just go with your gut, you're almost going on rote. Um, that's all well and good. And to tell you the truth, these things are lifesavers. 90% of the time, that's the way to go. But particularly if you're looking to be innovative, to take a different approach to things, that's not the way to go. That's going to get you the same old, same old. So trying to be a little more um, thoughtful about things and push your thinking and, quite frankly, question things. Um, anytime somebody tells me that's the way it's always been, I always a light bulb goes off and I go, there's an opportunity. Because when the crowd is going one way and you can figure out a different way, you're going to do, in general, really you know, I won't say you'll always do well, but that's the real chance for doing well. It's a little bit more of a risk taker profile, I will say. Now, in in these circumstances, um, you know, obviously, I, I would think that an employee might not volunteer information because maybe they feel like it's too radical or that it might get them into trouble. So, when you present them uh, with these situations, are they? Do they, is it known to them that they're in a safe environment and that they, they needn't worry about getting into trouble or being disciplined? That's a great question. And um, if I can run a – so, you know, there's two situations. There's in the workplace day to day. And then, of course, we do these very deliberate, you know, client comes and says we need to come up with a new beverage product or something like that. So in those situations where we bring a client team in, if it's possible not to know who's who's the boss, sometimes it's helpful yeah. because you treat everybody equally, right? So one of the other ways we do that is we have people submit ideas anonymously. We have a program, and you, anybody can do this, right? Um, it's the old suggestion box, if you must, but, but unattributed, so that you put things through, and then you're more likely to judge the idea on the basis of the idea itself as opposed to where it comes from. Um, it's really hard to get rid of those group dynamics when you're live and in person and everybody knows. So what's really key here, as is often the case, you need leadership buy-in and acceptance. You know, you need the, the leader of the organization or the group um, having that person say, it's okay, right? I want to hear absolutely everything you have to say, number one, and then number two, following through and not, and not sort of uh, – uh, changing their, their mind all of a sudden and critiquing everything that comes along. So once again, if it's in a deliberate session like that, um, if there are ways to get ideas put in anonymously, that's a great thing to do. Um, the other is uh, group acceptance. And, and finally, get the leader, you know, get the leader behind you. We will work with the leader of the group and kind of identify who they are. I mean, it's, it's going to be obvious if you're in person. Um, and let them know what their role is and, and give them maybe a little extra training or make sure that they're in line with stuff. The other way is if you're leading a session. So, you know, it's a very different situation when you're leading as opposed to when you're, you're part of the group. But when you're leading the session, you keep reinforcing. You just keep reinforcing. In fact, you applaud the crazy ideas, not because it's a great idea, but because somebody took a risk. Um, the worst, so this yes but, the worst form of this yes but, this censoring, is self-censoring. Even I do it. People do it. You can see on their faces when somebody has an idea, but they're not expressing it. Right. You know, they, they get a certain look. And, and at that point, if you're running the session facilitating like I am or one of my colleagues, you kind of pull it out of them. 
because often these are going to be the intriguing and and fun or provocative ideas, and you want to let people know it's 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 fine. But again, it's really it really really makes a difference when the boss, whoever she or he may be, is playing along. I guess I guess another option would be you could play a little game of undercover boss, where. You know, yeah, you know, you've probably seen that. I think it's on CBS, but uh, I have seen that. In fact, I thought of doing it, but I only have 25 employees. Right. uh, (laughs) I've actually wanted to do undercover employee. Yeah. And introduce an employee to the board of directors as though they are, you know, a board of director kind of person just to see if anyone can figure it out. But they're just a regular employee. Interesting. Just a regular employee working the line somewhere. Hey, right? you ought to pitch that to CBS or NBC. Kind of the opposite of undercover boss, undercover employee. Exactly. Yeah. I'm copywriting that idea right now. We have it recorded, right? Darn it! You um, got it first. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, I will tell you as a person who who uh, we'll we'll go we'll collaborate. No problem. Um, <laughs> uh, anything to break into the biz. So you know, but but what what's great about that is, like I said before. Um, Fred Meyer's the guy that founded this company, actually. He loves to tell a story about this one person in a group who kept putting stuff down, putting stuff down, and he finally turned to him and he basically lectured him, like I told you. And he came around and he was much more cooperative. And then somebody pulled him aside later and said, you know that's the owner of the company. <laughs> <laughs> he, he had no idea that it was the owner of the company. So I think if the boss can go in there and be undercover, that's fabulous, especially if the boss is willing to do that. Not all bosses are willing to do that kind of stuff. Another way to do it is not to have the boss there, but let the boss review the ideas. So we sometimes we do things online. Oh, that's a good when idea. Online, you, you miss the interpersonal. I mean, body language and facial expressions are amazing in reading to not exactly what people are thinking, but they have a thought going on. On the other hand, it's really clean and very unbiased. It's 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 the word on on paper, and that's it. I don't know if it came from Jack or Jane. Yeah, interesting. So I'm curious. You know, speaking of of people who make uh, those decisions, I'm also curious to know how gut instincts affect hiring decisions. <laughs> the the, uh, the, the um, one of the most common things people do in hiring somebody is um, a result of what we call conformity bias. Um, people often hire after themselves in their own light. In other words, I'm hiring somebody because I like them or because I have a good feeling about them. And What's tricky there is you can end up with a lot of people who think the same. And one of the things we look for in our sessions is to get people who think differently. In fact, we will bring outsiders in to a session, people who don't work for the company, um, either consumers or experts or or something else, just to get that outside of the box thinking somebody who's not already sort of programmed and knows everything. Harvey Firestone's the guy that founded uh, Firestone Tires, and he had a saying I love. He goes, show me two managers who think alike, and I'll fire one. 
<laughs> Why do I need two people who think alike? I need a broad variety of ideas. So I think trusting your gut sometimes in hiring, although I, I got to confess to some degree I use it, um, it is really is really a watch out for. Um, you need sometimes to be a little uncomfortable. You need to find people who um, think differently, have different experiences. You know, aside from all the other things you look for an employee, right? Yeah. And my deal is always hire somebody smarter than you if you can. Well, Ed, we've got about one minute left. Uh, and one just, minute. yeah, I know. We, this is, I've been having a good time. We've been coming up with some good TV pitches. Ideas, yeah. So, what do you want in that last minute? So, I'm just curious what's the one thing that you could tell employees of a company? Because uh, that's, you know, most of us are, are going to fall into that category, that yeah. what can we do with our gut instincts and to contribute to the company in a meaningful way? You know, I, I would – it's kind of a funny, uh, almost contradictory thing. One is um, be brave. You know, go ahead and offer that idea up. Um, um, be willing to take a risk. Be willing to stick out a little bit. The ironic twist in that is also be humble. And, and that is on the other side when other people are introducing their ideas, calm down, listen to it, think about what's going on. So one is when you're introducing your own ideas, be brave, go forth, uh, be a kind of a role model. The other is when other people are offering their ideas, be a little humble, don't feel as though you have to critique it um, to show you're smart. But think, okay, how might that work? Lend them a hand as opposed to a, a um, I don't know, a sock in the head. <laughs> well, Ed, thank you so much for your time. We've we've just had a great discussion here, and and like you said, we tossed around some really great ideas. Ah, but he already copyrighted them. So, Ed, I'll uh, I'll piggyback on those ideas if that's okay. Anyway, his name is Ed Harrington, and he is the co-author of the book Outsmart Your Instincts, How the Behavioral Innovation Approach Drives Your Company Forward. So look for that online. And uh, he's also the CEO at ideas to go And we've enjoyed our conversation with you, Ed, on outsmarting your instincts in the workplace. We'll take a quick break. When we come back, our producer, Leanna Tan, is going to be talking about her birthday. We're going to hear another tangent from one of our producers, Leanna Tan. It was her birthday this week, so she is going to tell us some of her greatest life events these past 24 years. Happy birthday. Just so you all know, Monday was my birthday, one of my favorite times of the year. A time to reflect on how much I've learned and grown and all the amazing things I've been able to experience these past 24 years. Life has treated me well, but I can't say I'm the same person I used to be. I've had some pretty great experiences that have changed my life for the better. And I decided, what better time to share those with you than right now, my birthday week. So, here it goes. Five of my greatest life events and accomplishments within these past 24 years. Getting a -a Hug-A-Bear for Christmas. Oh yes, one of life's greatest joys. If you aren't aware, a -a Hug-A-Bear was the ever-coveted toy of the 90s. For three-year-olds. It was a teddy bear that lit up when you hugged it and was connected to this little nightlight that also turned on every time you gave it a squeeze. Thought it was the coolest thing 
But actually, I originally opened a pair of Barbie walkie-talkies, which, by the way, I also had asked my parents for. But for some reason, in my three-year-old mind, the fact that it wasn't a hug bear seemed like the end of the world and Christmas was ruined for me. I know, I sound completely spoiled. But then, my mother changed my life for the better and went out and bought me that hug bear too. Thanks to my mother, Christmas is still a happy memory for me. Get it right next time, Santa. Winning tickets to the state fair. Man, I thought I was the coolest person. I think I was in like third or fourth grade and there was this library competition during the summer that whoever read the most books won tickets to the state fair. So you can only imagine what I spent my summer break doing while the rest of society was frolicking outside. But totally worth it. Not only did I get tickets to the state fair. You don't see that! Every day. Which I literally can't remember if I redeemed or not. But also, I got my name on a shiny black plaque with a cow's face on it that my mother proudly displayed above the mantle. Doing a 360 on a longboard. I know, hard to believe. But it was quite the accomplishment for me. I think I spent like an entire day once on the streets of Hawaii, staring down at that board, just trying to swivel it. Finally, by the time the sun was setting, I had it down. Eureka! AKA I did it like once or twice and felt like the coolest person on the planet. Don't ask me to do it now, though. Four. Eating a bug. Aw, oh, gross! This is something I never, ever, ever thought I would accomplish. There are very few things that I won't eat. And bugs are one of them. Well, were. But then I went to Japan and went to some friend's house for dinner, and they brought out dessert. Caramelized grasshoppers. They brought them all the way from Tokyo and said they were a delicacy. Um, could I be allergic? I'm pretty sure that there are, like grasshopper allergies out there i think i almost cried pinching that little critter between my chopsticks and watching its legs fall off but somehow i made it to my mouth and swallowed the whole thing like head wings everything it's like i can still feel its little legs in my teeth Five. driving myself through the drive through window for the first time this was a grand event for me and in fact the most recent one Well, I didn't own a car for a long time, and I didn't ever really go out for fast food much either. But I remember the day. There was my roommate. Wendy's was the location of choice. A gentle breeze blew through my hair as I rolled down the window. And when that voice from the box spoke to me, I knew it was to me and me alone. I felt so empowered and confounded at the same time. It was cool, but stressful. I mean, shoot, I had to make all the decisions. Recite orders correctly, then inch my way up. There were two windows. What were they for? And what if they spill my order on me when they hand it to me? Man, it was intense. But I made it out without a hiccup. It's been a great 24 years. I've accomplished so much. I can only imagine what the next quarter century will bring me. I mean, think about it. What's next? Maybe I'll upgrade my hug-a-bear to a clap light or something, or win tickets to the Bahamas this time. What possibilities? <laughs> well, thanks for all the birthday wishes, everyone. I'm Leanna Tan, and that's my little tangent. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. 
Good Wednesday morning. This is the Matt Townsend Show. We are once again Dr. Mattless, but that's okay. This is Jeff Simpson covering for him, as well as Terry South, our producer, and Colin Tanner, who is running the board with his hat. He's got his rally hat on right now. Howdy. We're going to drive it home. We've got one last hour on the show. It's not inside out. I guess that's true. But how do you explain the monkey? Um, today, just like every other day on the show, toward the end of the hour, we're going to be speaking with BYU Sports Nation in anticipation for their show, which comes up at 10 o'clock from 10 to 11 on BYU TV and BYU Radio. That's Spencer Linton and Jerem Jordan. We will also be speaking with one of our contributors, Brian Willoughby, on the three worst couples you'll ever meet. I don't know if that means like Brad and Angelina Jolie. Um, They're not a couple anymore, I thought. No, he's thinking more stereotypes of Ah. you always know a couple that does this. And I think their point is that that's just kind of a lot of us. It's not just individuals. There's a lot of people that have those kind of problems. How about the couple that calls each other mother and father? That's just our vice president. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, he gets more flack than than he needs to. He may invite it by uh, being folksy, if that makes any sense. If you have sort of a folksy delivery, a folksy demeanor in the way people tend to pile on. I saw, it seems simple, I guess. I saw a really cool video about the evolution of Hillary Clinton's uh, southern draw. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It comes and goes. It was yeah. really strong at the beginning, and then it completely went away. Yeah. And then when she was running for president, it kind of snuck back in again. Really funny video. Yeah. Um, people do that, though, when you, uh, you'll you pick up a cadence of the people you're speaking with. Yeah. And you try to mimic that so you seem like one of them. That's kind of an old trick. But uh, yeah. with TV – and all this video we keep seeing, you start comparing things. You're like, wait a second. This doesn't add up. Yeah. We tried an entire show where I uh, tried to sound like I was from Russia, and it failed miserably. It's hard to keep up. It really is. For three hours, I was barely able to do it for two years. Mm. Wait. Two years is longer than three hours. Anyway, we're also going to be talking about Star Trek First Contact Day. Um, Are we? No, I think we've done that okay, one today. Good, yeah. uh, but the deep dish pizza, we could talk about that all day and uh, just end up being hungry. Pepperoni and sausage. Terry just says pizza. A man of simple tastes. Yeah. And Colin. I'm a, I'm a Italian sausage guy. I go sausage pizza every time. Okay. And this is because you're from Italy? I'm from Texas, but. Close enough. I just think it's better. Hmm. Well, everything's better, or is everything bigger in Texas? It is bigger in Texas. Everything is bigger in Texas. So. Okay. Except for West, West Texas. West Texas is just... It's kind of flat. Yeah. It's boring. I, I still hope to go there someday and just randomly shout out, the stars at night are big and bright, and see what kind of response Deep I in get. You just get arrested. Texas. Really? Yeah, just... It happens. Just don't do it. And don't go to the Alamo and ask to see the basement because they will probably escort you off the premises. Oh, good tip. Anyway, all that fun stuff. Um, But first, let's ask Terry South what's going on around the rest of the country. U.S. officials said on Tuesday that North Korea launched a KN-15 missile into the Sea of Japan. 
The, this latest test comes days before Chinese President Xi Jinping will meet with President Donald Trump in Florida. The two are expected to discuss North Korea in response to the latest launch. Secretary of State Rex Tillerson issued a brief, somewhat ominous statement. North Korea launched yet another intermediate-range ballistic missile. The United States has spoken enough about North Korea. We have no further comment. Wow. Yeah. Mostly you want to condemn what they did bring up the fact that there are sanctions, that this is a unified unilateral, uh, you know, kind of not unilateral, unified agreement across the UN and the nations that this is something that needs to not happen and stop. And no, we just said we have no further comment. Does does Sean Spicer ever try to adopt that model of of speaking? Um, We have no further comment. Last week they asked uh, when uh, uh, Michael Flynn was talking about immunity Mm -hmm. and he would speak to Congress. Uh, they somebody asked Sean Spicer if they felt like Michael Flynn had any evidence or anything he would say that would be damaging to the Trump administration, and Spicer uh, responded with, "Nope." <laughs> so hmm. I got some play last week that was yeah. kind of fun. Just went. No, I mean, usually you have a response, and they just said, "Nope." Moving on, you know, and they moved on to the next <laughs> yeah. question. So I, depends on the day, I guess. In an interview with Gail King that aired on CBS uh, this morning today, first daughter and assistant to the president, Ivanka Trump, said that she does not know what, what it means to be complicit in her father's administration. If being complicit is wanting to be a force for good and to make a positive impact, it's not the definition. then I'm complicit. I don't know what it means to be um, complicit. Obviously. You know, I hope time will prove Obviously. that I have I done a good job and much mean. more importantly that my father's administration is the success that I know it will be. Now, she's trying to be supportive to her father. Uh, the, the criticism of complicit came after Saturday Night Live made a video of Scarlett Johansson as Ivanka. It was a perfume commercial. Okay. And it was called Complicit. And it was oh, it was criticizing her because there's many different things that her father or the administration has done that would seem to be contrary to things that she has previously previously said that she would fight against in the administration, trying to be a moral compass for her father. But somehow those things went through and went through. Case in point, the health care bill last week that was going to cut out maternity and newborn care. Where was Ivanka? She was in Aspen skiing. Yes. What are you doing, Ivanka? This is where you're supposed to step up and, and lean in because that's the, the the code word for a woman being involved is leaning in. And she wasn't there. You so know, was she complicit with her father? And hmm. and the definition went wild on Twitter yesterday, obviously, when this clip went out. Like, oh, wait, wait, we can help out. Merriam-Webster Dictionary tweeted the definition. Complicit is helping to commit a crime or helping to do wrong in some way. So she <laughs> – Just by, to help her out. By her own admittance, didn't know what complicit meant. So the irony is yeah. if she were wearing the perfume complicit, right. she wouldn't even know She'd it. She'd have no idea. Well, she would. That's – you know, that's more of her business, right? The perfume and the clothing line that yeah. she has, all that. So is she complicit? I don't believe so. And she said- You got to know what it means. She goes, I don't necessarily, I'm not out in front of cameras talking about what I'm talking to my father, but I do talk to my father. I do give him my opinion. He listens, but then he makes a decision on what he thinks the best course of action, depending on all the factors involved, which makes sense. But- at the same time, she's put her, made herself a target by saying she was going to kind of be the moral compass for her father. <laughs> hmm. So it's like, yeah, you got to take some of uh, 
it's kind of an interesting interview just to watch her because we don't really get a lot of exposure of her other than walking with her father to Marine One. Kmart, and, you know. Well, no, not Kmart. <laughs> but, you know, just we see her at different events. But we don't really get to hear her talk. So it's kind of interesting to, yeah. to hear that. So that's on CBS if you want to click on their website. I imagine it's there. They're pushing it far and wide. Representative Joaquin Castro, a Democratic member of the House Intelligence Committee, said Tuesday that some of Trump associates will likely end up in jail as a result of the ongoing probe into alleged collusion between Russia and the president's campaign. A Democratic member of Congress says that some of Trump's people will be in jail. Take it for what it's worth. He goes, my impression is after all this is said and done that some people end up in jail, Castro told CNN. Asked how high that suspicion goes, Castro replied, well, that's yet to be determined. He did, however, claim it's in his impression that multiple people will end up behind bars. If I were betting, he said, further hammering home his uh, confidence in the suspicion, he feels this will happen. He's kind of biased, but still. Lock him up. That kind of gives you kind of a feeling of the uh, polarizing effect of that situation at the moment. And finally, Connor Balthazar. Okay, let's take a minute and say that again. Connor Balthazar, I believe. He's 17. He's in the middle of a study group hall when he was called into a meeting with his high school newspaper advisor. A group of reporters and editors from a student newspaper at the Booster Redux at Pittsburgh High School in southeastern Kansas, which just causes more confusion. Pittsburgh High School in Kansas. Okay. Interesting. He works at the student newspaper. Called into an office with his advisor. They had gathered to talk about Amy Robertson, who was hired as the high school's head principal on March 6th. The student journalist had begun researching Robertson and quickly found some discrepancies in her education credentials. For one, when they reached her uh, Corlands University, the private university where Robertson said she got her master's and doctorate degrees years ago, the website didn't work. They found no evidence that it was accredited in any way. There were some things that just didn't quite add up, Balthazar told the Washington Post. The students began digging into a week-long investigation that would result in an article published Friday questioning the legitimacy of the president's degree or the principal's degrees and her work as an educational consultant. This is the school principal and you're in the, school, the student newspaper and you're calling your principal out for... How did she not shut that down? I don't know. On Tuesday night, I think there might be some laws in the state that kind of... Let student journalists do their thing. No, right? they don't. They don't have freedom. Of On Tuesday night, Robertson resigned. In light of the issues that arose, Dr. Robertson, allegedly, felt it was the best interest of this district to resign her position. The Pittsburgh Community Schools announced the board has agreed to accept her resignation. The resignation thrust the student newspaper staff, the student newspaper staff into local and state national news with professional journalists nationwide applauding the student for asking tough questions and prompting change in their administration. Connor's got a career ahead of him. I know. How often do you come out of high school with a job lined up? I'm sure he's going to get a job. Washington Post is going to be like, we got a desk for you. Well, maybe. But it is is interesting they went after the principal, they were just looking into maybe probably doing a bio on the principal, and they thought, well, let's check some of these because that's what you're supposed to do, right? Check the facts. How is it that a student is the first person to check the credentials? Right. That's the next question. So I imagine there's a point where the school district's like, we're going to look through our hiring process and make sure this. Yeah. But you hear about this happening from time to time. There's been. Uh, in my experience, some football coaches that have said they have degrees that they don't have degrees to. And Notre Dame had a coach they were trying to hire, and he didn't have the credentials he said he did. And so he was let go and moved on. And- yeah, they better take a second look at their staff. Yeah. Mm. 
Wow. So, I mean, the name of the college that she had a degree from was Corlins University. Corlins. Wouldn't you look at it and go, I've never heard of that. Let's look that up. Sure. But no, apparently no one looks that up because she had a master's and a doctorate. Especially if you think it's impressive enough to put on your resume. Here's why you should hire me. Right. Good for this kid. I mean, when I was in high school working at the newspaper, I did an article about – I did a survey about who – what movie the kids in the high school thought was the greatest movie ever made. And we we suggested movies to them. Right. So they weren't even really genuine answers. Right. I did the announcements and I did – I don't know. It was like we did stupid segments. They had nothing to do. This is – What have we done with our lives? I have no idea. Yeah. Mm. So – Good for him. Investigative reporting. That's awesome. They took down the principal. Wow. Hey, speaking of uh, teachers that probably shouldn't have a certain job – you, I mean, obviously, what we've learned from this uh, from this story is that if she was, if she wanted to be the principal, she should probably have some experience, right? Right. Well, there's an English speaking teacher. Uh, an English speaking teacher says the Miami Dade County School Board discriminated against her by not hiring her for a job. Right. One requirement of the position: teaching an hour of Spanish per day. Tracy Rosner, a third grade teacher, filed a federal lawsuit last week claiming employment discrimination on the basis of her race, which is white. Good luck with that one. Rosner says the principal had an unfair policy of of requiring its foreign language teachers to actually speak the language they were teaching. Rosner claims that she was otherwise fully qualified for the job. Now, up to that point, you're like, okay, maybe she has a complaint. Maybe there's an issue here. But then it's like the foreign language teacher, but you don't know the foreign language to teach it. How could you, you know? How could you teach it? Well, she's white. Well, they didn't hire her. She claims it's that, but it's probably more of the the fundamentally she can't do the job they want her to do. So I don't know. Go on. She's not qualified. Her complaint says the school could have given her the job and then just had someone else teach the foreign language component for one hour per day because that makes sense to hire two people to do one job. Well, it wouldn't even be that. It's just somebody else on the staff do her job. That's how it would work. Yeah, it'd be great. Yeah. The lawsuit claims that non-Spanish speakers are a minority population in Miami-Dade County and that seeking employment solely from Spanish speakers dis- disproportionately affects Rosner and others like her. Hmm. So she's white and she's in the minority. Yeah. But at the same time, she was, <sighs> she was trying to get a job that she didn't have the qualifications for. So if I was going to be, let's say, a stenographer – no, is a stenographer the one that types really fast? Yeah. Okay. I wanted to be a stenographer, mm-hmm. but uh, I could only type like 20 words per minute. Right. So maybe during that part of the job, uh, which doesn't make any sense because that is the job, maybe yeah. I could just have somebody else do that for me. Sure. Absolutely. <laughs> or you can record it and type it later. Just pay me to just – I'll just sit over here. So yeah, just uh, the whole thing was just kind of absurd. I'm reading along like, okay, well, okay, that's great. Why you have the kid? Wait a second. She doesn't speak Spanish, and it, she needs to, she needs to teach Spanish. This is ridiculous. Yeah. But they went to court with it, and uh, I don't know what the outcome of it was, but I can guess. I mean, the judge would probably go, wait a second. Yeah, I uh, I don't think you're going to be able to chop this up to race. They didn't hire me because I'm white. Somebody get a violin out. Well, I hope she's able to find a job somewhere else. Um, Kansas needs a principal. Kansas needs a principal. That's right. That's a good point. Just uh, I think she should put on a resume that she was not hired at uh, this Miami-Dade County School. 
and maybe that will be impressive. I don't know. But anyway, we wish her luck. And uh, when we come back, we're going to be talking about the three worst couples you've ever met with our frequent contributor, Brian Willoughby, who works here at BYU University or BYU that, that was kind of redundant. BYU University. University University. The University of Brigham Young University. <laughs> when we come back, this is the Matt Townsend Show. Welcome back to the Matt Townsend Show. This is Jeff Simpson filling in for Dr. Matt while he's away in beautiful St. George, Utah. He's hiding out in a bunker somewhere. Uh, But uh, his loss is my gain because I get to speak to Dr. Brian Willoughby, who's one of our frequent uh, contributors here on the Matt Townsend Show. He's an associate professor in the School of Family Life at Brigham Young University. Dr. Willoughby is also the director of the Relate Institute, a nonprofit organization dedicated to studying and improving romantic relationships. Dr. Willoughby's research focuses on young adult dating and relationship patterns, and uh, his specific expertise areas include dating, sexuality, uh, cohabitation, marriage formation, and marital attitudes slash beliefs. Welcome to the program. Good to be here. Now, I am very intrigued by the uh, the title of this interview, which is the three couples, the three worst couples you'll ever meet. And when I saw that, I thought, now, is he talking Brad Pitt and Angelina Jolie, or he's probably talking about something else? Yes, yeah, something else. <laughs> something else. Not not the celebrity couples. Right, right. Yeah. We're talking about those those couples that you see around, that you've grown up with, that you, you, your immediate impression of them is, oh, man, <laughs> they are so annoying. But at the same time, maybe there's something about those relationships that we can learn from sure. in our own relationships. So do you mean more of what to not do? What to not do and some things that make those couples annoying that might actually be some strengths. Interesting. Yeah. Okay. So let's talk about what – or uh, let's outline those three couples and go a little deeper on those. Okay. So the, the first one is the, the volatile couple. And the, so the, these are the couples that are going 100% all the time. So the couples that fight really, really loudly, but then they make up just as loudly. Interesting. That's the first couple. Okay. Yeah. We call them volatile because they're very emotional. Yeah. Right? All the emotions are really high all the time. And they're, they're annoying to us because, one, if you're living next to them, you hear them all the time, right? Yeah. Fighting. Um, and then they seem like they're – it seems exhausting to us. It seems exhausting to, to be around those couples. Mm-hmm. But it, like I said, there's, there's some potential strength there. Okay. Which is interesting because volatile couples – and we call them volatile couples. It sounds like a negative – but they're actually stable couples over the long term, which is interesting. So benefits maybe in that uh, you never have to guess what they're thinking? That's part of it. Yep. Okay. They tend to be very open and very vulnerable with each other. Yeah. And so they're very open with their communication. Like you said, you don't have to ever guess what that partner's <laughs> thinking because they're going to say it. The other part is they tend to be actually very empathetic because they're they're so used to expressing emotion and feeling emotion very intensely that when their partner – feel sad or angry or frustrated, they can empathize and say, well, I know what it's like to be really mad at you because I felt like that. I know what it's like to be really frustrated with you because I felt that too. And so that empathy and that connection tends to to be really strong with those couples, which is one of the reasons why um, they tend to make up a lot of times after they have these big fights. 
Yeah. So in your opinion, do you think there's more of a danger to being very volatile like this and just wearing your emotions on your sleeves? Or is there more of a danger to bottling things up and not making clear your intentions and your feelings? Yeah, both have potential risks involved. Okay. The, the, there is a, some risk with these couples too, is that when, you, when you're expressing your emotions all the time, you're not holding anything back. It can lead to some hurt feelings. It can lead to some frustrations over time. And, and particularly, these are couples that do have high risk over time of developing some unhealthy conflict patterns where they can't kind of get used to attacking each other and, and showing a lot of criticism towards each other. And we know that that eventually might lead to some negative patterns. And so there's that risk. There's also the risk, though, of, of never opening up and holding everything in, like you said, bottling up my emotions. And eventually what we know about that is that that might work for my friend that I see every once in a while or my yeah. coworker that I have to deal with a couple times a week. But for my spouse or my romantic partner that I'm seeing every single day that I want to have a 20, 30, 40-year relationship with, bottling up those, re- those emotions are not going to work in the long run because they're eventually going to come out. Yeah. And it seems like a, a lot of times, too, when we're communicating, we'll say, you know, instead of saying, I think this or I, I, uh, I think we need to work on this, what you're really saying is, I think you need to work on this. Right. Yeah, exactly. So, so if I'm holding everything back, then I tend to be passive aggressive, Yeah. Right? which is like you said, I'll, I'll drop little hints here or there. I'll give you a disapproving look, hoping that you'll just get the idea and eventually change. Yeah. So if... if if that first couple is us, or if that's my wife and me, mm-hmm. what is something that we can do to get rid of the negative aspects of, of that description? Right. Yeah. So part of it is is not feeling like you have to go on the other end of the spectrum and never talk and never express emotion. Um, it's really just about tapering it down just a little bit and recognizing that, okay, so we're both very emotional people. We, we tend to want to say what we feel, and that's okay. But we need to start to recognize when it gets to a point and gets to a level where we're starting to hurt feelings. Mm-hmm. And so maybe we have kind of a cue or understanding that, hey, if I ever say something I really hurt your feelings, have a timeout. Pause things and say, hey, tell me that I hurt your feelings. Yeah. So we can kind of pause and, and not let it escalate to, to that level. Yeah. For me, I, I, I almost feel like it's worse to walk on eggshells around couples really not knowing – Let's say if I'm a guest in somebody's home, not knowing if I'm welcome there or if they even want to be hosting, you know. Uh, Interesting. So that's couple number one. Mm -hmm. Uh, Tell us about couple number two. So couple number two is the the codependent. And and this is actually probably the most common one that annoys people. These are the couples that do everything together. They finish each other's sentences. They can't ever be apart, particularly if you're a single person and one of your friends starts to date someone and they end up in this kind of relationship and you're like, hey, let's go see a movie. Let's let's go do something. Oh, okay. Well, I can't unless I bring my, my partner along. Sure. I, I, I can't ditch them and leave them by themselves. They won't be able to handle that. Um, and we see the same thing with married couples too is that they have to do everything together. And, and this is another relationship that – has some potential issues, but also has maybe some hidden strengths that that uh, we should think about. Now, do you mean more like if if uh, one of my guy friends says, "Hey, let's go see this movie," or do you mean now? What if what if there's a, a friend from high school that's a female that says, you know, that's trying to strike up a conversation on Facebook, mm-hmm. or that you know says, "Hey, I haven't seen you in you know a decade. Let's go grab some lunch." Yeah. Codependency is more about an inability to make individual decisions. And so it's not necessarily about hanging out or not hanging out. It's about, oh, I don't feel like I can go do something by myself anymore because my partner will feel bad that I've left them. 
Right. Even for a lunch with a friend or catching up with someone. Um, or I feel like I can't make a decision, right? You want to go hang out next weekend. Well, I need to go check up with my partner first to see if that's okay. That That's what codependency is, is that, that, that necessity of checking in and doing everything together because we're worried that I, I can't or I don't feel capable of making my own decisions. Yeah. Interesting. Well, let's do this, Brian. Let's take a break. But first of all, let's recap really quick. So the first couple that we talked about, the the overly reactive or the volatile couple that they wear their emotions on their sleeves. They, right. if, they're, if they're mad, they're extremely mad. But if they make up, then they do it in a, a very emotional, powerful way as well. Uh, the second one that you just mentioned, the codependent couple, that uh, they've got to do everything together. Right. Uh, and when we come back, we're going to have you reveal the number three couple, mm-hmm. and uh, hmm, maybe we can identify which one I am or which one you are. Okay. But uh, let's let's take a break. When we come back, we'll continue the discussion with Dr. Brian Willoughby here on the Matt Townsend Show. Welcome back to the Matt Townsend Show. Once again, this is Jeff Simpson filling in for Dr. Matt while he's away in St. George. And uh, I'm uh, speaking with Dr. Brian Willoughby, who is currently an associate professor in the School of Family Life at Brigham Young University. He received a bachelor's degree in psychology from Brigham Young University and then went on to receive a master's and doctoral degree in family social science from the University of Minnesota. Dr. Willoughby is considered an international expert in the field of couple and marital relationships, and his research generally focuses on how adolescents, young adults, and adults move toward and uh, form long-term committed relationships. Welcome back to the show. Good to be here. So um, during the break, I asked you a little bit about your family and uh, about your background working with teens. And I'm kind of curious, before we get to the third couple here, um, how much of this uh, do you see in teen relationships Mm -hmm. versus adult relationships? Is it more prevalent in one or the other? You know, the interesting thing about these types of couples is they're actually prevalent across the life course. I mean, they obviously look a little bit different in in middle school and high school and and college and then with married couples. But these themes of of being a volatile couple or being a codependent couple are are things that we can see across really any of the age groups, which is interesting. Yeah. It's kind of a – we think based on just – basic human patterns and relationships that tend to just be there. Whenever two people get together, you have the potential for these types of couples. And every time you see an adult couple arguing, you almost get a glimpse of of what it's like when they were teenagers, too, right. because yeah. you, you listen to one of these arguments and it's like, wow, that sounds like a couple of teenagers right. fighting right yeah. there. And, and, and we probably all remember, for those of us who are a little bit older, that we get more annoyed with with couples maybe when we were in high school and in college just because they're there, right? Yeah. Married couples can hide a little bit in their own houses. And, sure. And, and kind of, you know, like you said, when you see that, then it's like, oh, wow, they're 
acting like a bunch of teenagers. Well, we all act like a bunch of teenagers in our marriages. Yeah. We can just hide it a little bit better than when we're in the hallway on the way to biology class or yeah. in between uh, classes in college. So, you know, you you told me a little bit about your family during the break, but it sounds like you are going to be seeing some of this maybe here in a few years yep, with some my, of your kids. My my oldest is 13, and, and so I'm doing is. As good a job as I can right now to drill into them that your dad is an international expert in dating. Yes. So when you start to go through this process, every every question comes through me. Every dating partner comes through me because I'll be able to tell you if it's a good match or not. Oh, my goodness. I'm sure that will not work out at all. I, but I, that's what I'm going to tell them. I can't even tell you how much I would have loved to have had this type of advice when I was a teenager because, as I told Colin earlier in the show, everything awkward that happened to me in my life happened in junior high yeah. when I was dating. And, oh, I'm glad period. that part of my life is over. Although I should still be dating and courting my wife. Yes, that's right. Which I am. Uh, Okay, so you told us about the overly reactive couple. You told us about the codependent couple. And now you're going to reveal the number three couple uh, that we – the third worst couple that we'll ever meet. That's right. So this one's an interesting one. This is the detached or what we call hostile couple. And it's interesting. Earlier you mentioned the kind of awkward when you're visiting someone's home – and you kind of feel like you're walking on eggshells because you feel like something's wrong, usually that actually means that you might have a detached or hostile couple. This is a couple that kind of feels like they don't like each other very much, kind of feels like they, they're trying to avoid each other, tends to be very passive-aggressive with each other, um, and, and tends to just kind of be really cold towards each other. And, and the interesting thing about this couple is that um, there isn't actually a lot of redeeming value to this. In fact, these are, mm. these are the behaviors we tend to see when couples are actually having a lot of problems yeah. and might even be moving towards a, a breakup or, or a divorce. But what the benefit of, of understanding that these couples are out there or why they're out there is that these are couples we can learn from and say, I don't want to be like this. I don't want to ever get to the point in my relationship where I don't want to be around my partner. And so there's actually something we can learn, not that they're doing anything right, but there's something we can learn about trying to avoid these kind of behaviors. Yeah. So obviously from the first two couples that you shared with the, you know, the volatile and uh, the codependent, it, it seems like there are some obvious things that we could pull from from those examples to say, oh, these are actually kind of positive traits that we right. could adopt in our marriage. Are there any redeeming qualities or, or positive aspects of, of being a hostile couple? Not really, but there's, there's <laughs> one clear thing that you can see in these couples that's a good warning sign or a good clue that we need to work on something. And it is this avoidance of each other, um, something that, that uh, a researcher by the name of John Gottman called stonewalling, which is trying to basically you kind of assume that if we start talking or if we start interacting, we're going to fight. And so what's the point? Let's just kind of stay away from each other. Yeah. And like I said, if you're ever in a home or around these couples, you can kind of sense it. And it's kind of really awkward, which is, which is what makes them annoying because it kind of raises the tension in the room. Um, but what that tells me is that if I'm in a relationship and I ever start to find myself thinking, man, I don't really – you know, I, I, I normally want to go on a date or go see a movie. Maybe I'll just go by myself. Yeah. I don't, don't want to take my spouse or my partner with hmm. me. Or, man, it really sounds nice to hang out with my friends and not be around my partner, that should send up this warning flag to me that something's going on. Something's going on in my relationship that I need to start to pay attention to and start to try to fix. Because if I don't, again, this this is one of the best warning signs we have of an intimate divorce is when I start to have that thought of, I just don't want to be around. When I start to detach emotionally 
to my partner. But the, yeah, and obviously, there's a difference between that and just needing some alone time. Right. Yeah, and it's, yeah. it's even different than conflict avoidance, right? So some couples will just be conflict avoidant, and in fact, the codependent couple we talked about tends to like to avoid conflict. So if we start to fight, well, oh, it's not that big of a deal. Just push it under the rug. This is something different because this is not when we're actively fighting. It's not like you said that I just need a breather. I need to re-energize, which can be positive. We need to yeah. have individual likes and hobbies. We don't have to do everything with our spouse. It really is that thought of I'd rather be doing something alone or by myself than with my spouse. And I really think it's the alone part that's the, the big clue is it's not, oh, I want to go hang out with my friends or I want to go do this thing with my kids. It's I'd rather be by myself than with my partner. Yeah. That's, that's the big hmm. warning sign. Okay. Um, any other red flags from the other two uh, relationships that we should watch out for? Um, I, I think each of them ha- have a good red flag. For the codependent, it, like I said, since that's so much about individuality and making your own decisions, a good red flag for that is if you had to make a, a big decision at work or with your kids, certainly you'd want to talk through a lot of those things with your partner. But if they weren't available for whatever reason, they're on a business trip or they're gone, could you make that decision on hmm. your own? Do you feel confident in your ability to make a decision? If not, if that if that creates all this anxiety and I'd have to find a way to contact them – that's probably a good warning sign for the codependent. Sure. Um, for the emotional one um, or, the vol- or the volatile couple, um, a good wa- warning sign, a good red flag for that one is if your partner ever says, you know what, sometimes I wish you didn't have to tell me everything. Right? That's a good sign. Or if, if, and not even necessarily your partner because someone who's in a volatile relationship tends to do that at work, tends to do that with your friends. So if you ever have someone kind of say, you know what, maybe you should keep that to yourself. <laughs> or maybe you didn't need to set, tell that, say that out loud. That can be a good warning sign that I might be in one of those more volatile, very emotionally reactive relationships. Yeah. Okay. So we know the three couples uh, that are the worst that we you know, probably might not want to try to model our relationships after. But if you could give a name to the type of couple that we would want to try to be, just in closing here, or uh, what elements would kind of make up that perfect couple for the lack of a better right. term. Yeah. I like C words for whatever reason when okay. it comes to, to relationships. And the, and the two C words I like to describe healthy relationships that take the best parts of some of these, these annoying relationships we've talked about is committed and collaborative. So a healthy relationship is committed to each other. So they have some elements of that codependency. They're loyal to each other. They're committed to each other. Um, but it doesn't go all the way to that codependency level. Um, and they're collaborative. Right? They open up, they disclose like a, a reactive couple. Again, not to that extent, um, but the, they work together, they disclose, they talk to each other, um, and they have this sense of joint vision as a relationship. We're working towards something together. We have joint goals, whatever those are. Maybe it's raising our kids. Maybe it's career success for each other. Maybe it's just to travel the world together someday. We're working together towards that, and we're committed to each other. Th- those two qualities together really make healthy relationships. So strive to be more of the C couple. That's right. Than yeah. the codependent yeah. or the volatile or uh, the last one was hostile. Yeah. Well, Brian, you've done it again. We appreciate you as always. And uh, do you want to take a minute to to talk about the book that you're working on that's going to be coming out pretty soon? Sure. I know. I feel like we've been talking about this for a long time. We want to help you out. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's called The Marriage Paradox. It's uh, trying to understand uh, young adults in their 20s and what in the world's going on with marriage, um, with that group. How are they thinking about marriage? Why are they, they not getting married as, as much as they have in previous generations? And um, should be coming out in the next couple months.
All right. So look for that. Dr. Brian Willoughby, thanks again. Uh, Dr. Brian Willoughby is an associate professor in the School of Family Life at BYU, not BYU University, as we said uh, during the last break. But uh, we're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we'll have some fun with our good friends at BYU Sports Nation, Spencer and Jerem, who will be giving us a preview of what's coming up on their show at 10 o'clock. We'll be right back. This is The Matt Townsend Show. Welcome back to the Matt Townsend Show, and uh, right about now is our favorite time of the show, and I'm not just saying that because uh, it sounds nice, but it's it's true. It's the time that we head down to usually Spencer and Jerem, but today it's Jerem and Jason at BYU Sports Nation. What's going on, fellas? I know why it's your favorite time of the show. Okay. Because you are 10 minutes away from being done. Oh, you what know about, me too well. Uh, what about <laughs> this show do you like the most? Like, what would be the best part of this show that you like? Is it the witty banter? You know, we Is had it the a... sports knowledge or knowledge. <laughs> I, you know, it's all of those things. But mostly, I, I just love the sound of your voices. Oh, you don't Very believe nice. me? No. Oh, darn it. I thought it was convincing. Um, hey, today, you know, uh, my Great favorite part. It, <laughs> <laughs> so this is actually my favorite part of the show because it's usually the time of the show when we bring out some really weird food item to talk about. And okay. it always makes us hungry, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So today is deep dish pizza day. I First of all, I want to know if you guys are thin uh, regular or deep dish, and I'm, I'm not talking about body guy. type. Yeah, thin. Oh, <laughs> what? Uh, pizza, yeah, yeah, thin, thin, thin crust. But I will tell you, I had deep, deep dish, dish pizza, 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 pizza in Chicago. Were you? Uh, we did traveled, you just? Had, we did you, traveled, was that in space? Were you just in space? Yeah, right we were. There? Yes. Oh my yes. goodness. We were. We, we went, are. We, we went interstellar for just a moment. Yeah. Okay. So you were uh, in Chicago. I had. We had gone out for BYU versus Notre Dame several years ago. So I, and that was the first time I'd ever had Chicago deep dish pizza. It was amazing. But hmm. you cannot eat that more than once a year. Was it basically a loaf of bread with some cheese on it? <laughs> it. <laughs> well, it's like yeah. I mean, they they call it a pie, right? Yeah. Back it is so for a good. Reason. There's a lot more there than. Did you know you can actually have that stuff freeze-dry shipped to you? Wow. Really? I did that for a Super Bowl party, like the year after. Hmm. Was it expensive? No, it's like 80 bucks. It's it's like not not bad. how many? For two two pizzas. 80 bucks for two pizzas is expensive. But you're going to spend like 20 bucks on one anyway to go eat it. So then another 20 bucks to ship it? Yeah, it's well worth it. I, I, well, you're from the Midwest. I highly that's, recommend that's somebody doing it that. It was a great Super Bowl party, by the way. Insert Chicago pizza establishment name here. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Joey's Pizza. So, okay. Would you try a pizza with peeps on it? Ugh, no. I don't even know what peeps are. The, you don't the, know what peeps candies, are? The Easter candy things. Oh, those. I was thinking some actual topping for pizza. With peeps? Peeps, no. No. I'm not mixing tomato sauce and peeps. Now, you throw, like, circus peanuts? I, you may get my interest. <laughs> circus peanuts? Just the shells? There may be some ground? shells sprinkled in there, yeah. Wow. Would okay. you, Jeff? Oh, would you? I wouldn't eat a peep. 
I, I agree. You wouldn't eat agree. A peep? No, I wouldn't even eat a Let peep on its own. So is that a thing, or are you just throwing that out there as a hypothetical? Oh no, it's a thing. Well, okay, I, I mean, was, I was say, one, that one guy did it. One guy did it, and it made the news. So I, it, yeah. I guess it's not really a thing. So now it's made the news again. Yeah, that's gross. Like, we want to give more attention like, combinations to combinations and coming up I, with creative things, but that's that's nasty. I saw a video yesterday of a guy that made a pizza and then he put five Big Macs on the pizza and then he <sighs> made a pizza on top of that and then cooked it. And I was and, like, "Holy shnikes!" And then he he traveled back in time. <laughs> yeah, he's he's now dead. <laughs> you know, there are certain foods that I look at and say, "This is why the rest of the world hates us." <laughs> because we come up with things like this to eat. There are people starving, and we're like talking about whether we would eat this food with this food. You know we're what I mean? flaunting like, it in it front is. of them. Yeah. It's sad. I'm going to put a hamburger yeah. on a pizza. There are people dying. <laughs> <laughs> wow. This has been like a flash course in pop culture here these last few minutes. We got Smashing Pumpkins and Groundhog Day, and I'm not sure what that last one was, but there it is. MJ? No. Man in the Mirror. Oh, the best part of the Lego Batman movie, by the way. Um, (laughs) Well played. Such a good movie. Well played. we've got a couple of minutes left. I want to find out what's coming up on your show. Yeah, I guess we're doing that, too. Um, So there there are way too early projections, right, for college basketball looking ahead to next year since the national championship game was Monday. So ESPN's uh, Joe Lenardi came out with his bracketology. Was BYU in? And then Fox Sports had the most positive thing. You're not going to tell us? No. Uh, It's called the tease. Uh, And Fox Sports came out with the most positive review of BYU Hoops for next year. We'll tell you what they said, and we'll discuss what's closer to reality, Fox or ESPN. We're also going to have Steve Cleveland, former BYU head coach. We love having Coach Cleveland in studio to talk some hoops. So we'll we'll actually ask him that question uh, that Jerem just posed. We'll we'll find out what he thinks, and then we'll also find out, you know, a couple additions – We've got Zach Selius coming back to the BYU basketball team. That was made official last week. We'll find out what he thinks Zach can bring to this BYU basketball team in the upcoming season. And a little big deal, no deal. A BYU Cougar will be in the opening group of the Masters tomorrow. Keaton Kringlin of the baseball team won not his first, second, but his third national award based on his stellar week last week. So a lot going on. So Steve Cleveland, uh, is he the guy from that show, The Cleveland Show? Yeah. Yes, one of the same. Yep. Well, I just can't wait to see that that show. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) All right. BYU basketball. (laughs) If only. But I'm sure. No, 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 no. (laughs) Oh, goodness. See, you've, wow, you've illustrated why this is my favorite part of the show. Okay. I didn't well, even have to you, say anything. You just opened your mouth, and boom, whoop, there it is. <laughs> when does your show end? Is it 58 after? Uh, in five minutes. In five minutes. You go all the way to the top? All the way, before? baby. AT Dub? Yeah. Okay, five minutes left in the show, everybody. Hang in there. Oh, was that another way of saying you, you've only got five minutes left to suffer through? No, just stay oh. strong, my brother. Oh, well, that'll take. So, uh... Guys, go eat some Peeps pizza and have a good show. Oh, my goodness. (laughs) All right. We'll talk to you again tomorrow. Thanks, guys. (sighs) Now I just got a little sick thinking of that Peeps pizza again. Speaking of sick, this next story has nothing to do with it. A Dodge Challenger owner in Pensacola, Florida, recently smashed his muscle car through a coffin business and a tax service office while making an attempt 
to travel through time. Maybe he wasn't going 88 miles per hour. <gasps> Wait a minute. That's in the story right here. Most Americans are familiar with the Back to the Future movie series, which features a, spe- a specially modified DeLorean that can travel through time when it, hit, when it hits 88 miles per hour. Evidently, a Florida man who owned a Dodge Challenger, Challenger was making a similar attempt. And when his car failed to leave modern times, he instead slammed into an office complex, destroying his Challenger, a coffin company, and a tax preparation service office. That's just cruel. Right before tax day, Man. pull a stunt like that. And it wasn't a DeLorean, you know. It doesn't work if it's not a DeLorean. And well, you have to have a flux capacitor. Plus, you know, 88 miles per hour in the 80s may have seemed like it was a fast speed. But today, that's just, you know, Utah that's driving. That's yeah. everyday Utah that's driving everyday right there. on the I-15. So maybe he should have bumped it up to like 108. <laughs> anyway... And yeah, it only works in a DeLorean. Well, as you know, we always like to end our show with a hero story of the day. And uh, this one is also another great one. Two Michigan men were hailed as heroes after they helped a state trooper in a desperate struggle with two men, one who had resisted arrest and his brother who intervened. The entire brawl was captured on the trooper's dash cam. The video shows Trooper Gary Gary Guild pursuing Michael Barber, 21, who was riding a stolen motorcycle near the Indiana border last month. The chase reaches speeds over 90 miles per hour. It's getting closer to time travel speed before Barber eventually loses control and crashes. The video then shows him charge Guild and fight him as the trooper tries to handcuff him. That's when a car pulls up and Barber's half-brother, Travis Wise, jumps out, runs over and attacks Guild applying a chokehold. The trooper struggles with the brothers for several minutes, with Wise choking him and Barber punching him. Guild later told a court hearing that he thought he was going to die and decided he he needed to use deadly force, but that Barber had tried to unholster his service weapon and it was lost in the scuffle. I am gasping and struggling for air to the point where I can't breathe, Guild told the Detroit Free Press. The video then shows two motorists stop and pull the brothers off Guild. Keith Peppel of Plain, uh, Plainwell, Michigan, jumped in first and pulled both brothers off the trooper, putting one and then the other in a headlock. Then Jerry Burnham of Berrien Springs, Michigan, helped pin down Wise while the trooper handcuffed Barber. I guess everything happened so fast you don't really have time to think about it, Peppel told the newspaper. I just saw that he needed help, and I decided to help. They stopped when other people were not stopping to help a police officer who was being attacked by two people, Michigan State Police uh, uh, Lieutenant Melinda Logan said. Without regard to their safety or for their safety, they came in and rescued the trooper until he was able to gain control of the suspects and place them under arrest. Without them, I don't know what would have happened to the trooper. Guild injured his neck and jaw in the brawl and injured his hand trying to use his taser, but he was back on the job the next day. Wow. What an amazing story. And just goes to show you that police need our help, too. And when you see a situation that looks like it's getting out of hand, you know, obviously assess it and make sure that it's going to be safe for you to intervene. But just be ready to to make a phone call at the very least to people that can help if you're not in a situation to help. But again, we encourage you to look for those opportunities to be a hero in your own way, even if it's in a very small way. Anything that you can do to make a difference in someone's life in a meaningful way can make you a hero. 
So, once again, look for those opportunities. We will continue the discussion tomorrow here on The Matt Townsend Show. When we return, we'll talk to you tomorrow.